this episode, Justice League America number 36 and Justice League Europe number 12, cover dated March 1990. Hello, and welcome to the 36th episode of Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. My name is the Irredeemable Shag, and I'm your host, but I'm not flying solo. Every single episode, we feature two different guest hosts. We'll chat with my second co-host a little bit later. But for now, my first co-host today is a returning guest to the embassy. This gentleman, and I use the term very loosely, was recently banned from all local toy stores for harassing his fellow customers as he tried to grab the last Turbo Man action figure from the shelves. Jingle all the way indeed, sir. Folks, please help me welcome back the host of Radio vs. the Martians, Podcast La Vista, and many other fine podcasts, Mr. Mike Gillis. Welcome back to the New York Embassy, Mike. Thanks for being here, man. How you doing? Good to be here. Good to be here. And it's a collector's item, so it's worth fighting for. <laughs> so how many Turbo Men do you have on the shelf there? Oh, I, I just need the one, unless it's the one that I have to defeat uh, Sinbad during a parade um, <laughs> to win the special edition one. Not many parades going to happen this year. And this is our December episode, so it does seem fairly timely. Absolutely. So, Mike, Mike, you are one of the few guests I've ever invited back to the show. Now, for those of you sitting at home who've ever been on the show before and haven't been invited back, take the hint. Anyway, Mike, uh, we appreciate you being back here. And tell us, what's been going on in your life since uh, since we talked last four years ago? Oh, well, I don't know if you've noticed, but this year's been a little weird. Um, uh-uh. I've been inside a lot, and I just <laughs> want to say uh, thank you for... <laughs> giving me some human interaction. I definitely appreciate it. You know, it's something that I'm, I'm definitely starving for. So I'm willing to even come back on this show. <laughs> well, I appreciate that glowing endorsement. Thank you so much. Sir. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's been one that, you know, I've been on hiatus from podcasting and I've, I'm definitely feeling the bug again. We haven't been able on, on my show to get back in the studio in a while. And I just, I want to talk about nerdy stuff on the internet again. So, oh, I'm just desperate. I've been practically holding the cardboard sign, you know, we'll, we'll podcast for food. <laughs> He's so desperate, he's willing to do a Nort issue, folks. Oh, <laughs> I am thrilled to do a Nort issue. Actually, you did the uh, the Nort bit in our promo, in fact, if I recall yeah, correctly. Yeah, yeah. Nort, Nort is a bit, a bit of an underrated character. I think that there's a whole range of that kind of humorous side character wearing a vest. And I think Nord is one of the better versions of that one. Well, I think we're going to have that conversation in just a little bit, because I do want to talk about Nord and and how much Nord is enough. So, But we will get to that. But first, we need to take a moment to thank our sponsors. Folks, this episode of the JLI Podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off, with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Now, each episode will select a collected edition to briefly discuss from the InStockTrades library. Usually, it's time to that month's uh, episode or, or issue of JLI in some way, shape, or form. And uh, for me, I, this episode, I brought Justice League Corporate Maneuvers Trade Paperback. So this is the first time the Justice League Quarterly series has been uh, collected at all. It you know it was printed in the 90s, never seen again. So they finally put it all together. 
there's a lot, or at least the four first four issues are together in a trade paperback that just came out recently. It's 304 pages of conglomerate chocolatey goodness, folks. You're dealing with Booster Gold and his side gig, if you will. His team called the conglomerate featuring characters like Maxi Man, Praxis, star of the Harlequin cartoon, by the way, Gypsy, Echo, Vapor, and Reverb. Yeah, you know, all those great characters that uh, were going to be in the next Justice League movie. If only they'd made one. Anyway, folks, uh, you can get this. It's written by Keith Giffen and other folks. Art by Chris Spouse. Uh, cover art is Adam Hughes and normally retails for $24.99, but you can get it right now for 42% off, so it's only $14.49 on in-stock trades. Heck of a deal. Ooh. Now, Mike, did you happen to bring an in-stock trades pick? I won't think less of you if you didn't. Oh, well, in that case, I have to now. See, just to- <laughs> <laughs> But I, I recommended one. It has nothing to do with the Justice League whatsoever, but it's a series that I really love by one of my top three comic creators of all time. It's a manga series called Master Keaton, Volume 1 by Naoki Urasawa. Mm. The uh, Instark Trades blurb says, Taichi Hiraga Keaton, son of a Japanese zoologist and an English noblewoman, is an insurance investigator known for his successful and unorthodox methods of investigation. Educated in archaeology and a former member of the SAS, Master Keaton uses his knowledge and combat training to uncover buried secrets, thwart would-be villains, and pursue the truth. I love this series to death. Naoki Urasawa is a master of comic books. Uh, He's basically a globetrotting insurance investigator. He's like one part (laughs) Columbo, one part Indiana Jones, one part MacGyver. He's very Paul Ruddish. So he's kind of a a bit of a dork. And it kind of hides the fact that, you know, he's like a super skilled dude who goes on adventures. People tend to underestimate him. I love this series to death. It's kind of wonderfully episodic, too. So you can kind of pop in and out of it. You're not completely signing on for all 12 volumes, but you'll probably want to after reading it. 338 pages, original price $19.99, but in stock trades price is $13.99, so that's 30% off. That sounds glorious. I love the idea of an insurance investigator. That's awesome. So, folks, for these and all your trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. We also need to thank our other sponsors, folks, which is you people at home through our Patreon. Because, you know, running the Firewater Podcast Network with so many shows requires a lot of online hosting and other services. And the expenses related to hosting have grown beyond our ability to cover it. And so we launched the Patreon, and you folks really stepped up to help us, and we appreciate it. And I can honestly say, if it weren't for your help at home, this show would not still be on the air. So thank you so very much. And folks, if you're enjoying the JLI podcast, the best way to support the network is by visiting our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash fwpodcasts, and consider supporting the Firewater Podcast Network while you're there. And we sincerely appreciate everyone's support, and in certain tiers you get mentioned on the show of your choice. So our thanks to folks uh, who chose the JLI show, specifically Bill Beer, Chris Lewis, Danny Dowell, David A. Gutierrez, Devin Clancy, George William, Gord Tolton, John Ross Haynes, Martin Gray, Matt Ev, Maxwell Traver, Mike Zamkowski, Roger Preeb, Rudy Castillo, Sean Ross, and Tim Price. Thank you so much for your support. And again, folks, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. Now, folks, we are going to talk about this nort, nort, nortity, nort-ish issue of JLA in just a second here. But we want to hear from you. So get out on the social medias. Use our hashtag, which is pound fwpodcast. You can tag us at JLI Podcast on Twitter or Justice League International Blahaha Podcast on Facebook. We want your feedback because it's all about building a community of online JLI fans around 
on the show. You can also uh, go out to our website, of course, which is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI, and leave your comments on the show post there, which is where most of the comments do occur. Now, normally at this point in the show, we take a second to talk with our guests about their origins with the JLI. However, Mike's already answered this question. If you go back to June 2016, when we covered Justice League number four, the debut of Booster Gold, oh, what a great issue, and Mike was an okay guest. You can hear his answers there. You like the ringing endorsement? Oh, absolutely. I do. I miss the before times. So you could go outside back then. <laughs> All right, folks. Also on our website, you can see some of the images from this issue, which is actually kind of important because this is a hard issue to find nowadays, and we're going to talk about why. So this is Justice League America number 36, published by DC Comics, cover dated March 1990, on the shelves January 16th, 1990. Cover price, $1 for Shiny Quarters. Cover is by Adam Hughes. Mike, you want to describe the cover for us? Yeah, this cover has a Nort, as drawn by Adam Hughes, being kind of casually crushed by a giant metallic purple hand covered in Kirby crackle. And definitely it's very cosmic and it has the words bad doggy on it as uh, <laughs> Nort struggles to get himself. I like the way he's being held because he's definitely being uh, grabbed in a way that isn't being crushed, but just kind of held in place. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's it's not quite loving, but it, it looks like you're thinking, oh, those, that probably hurts his sides quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a strange one because either he could be held up like a Statue of Liberty torch or he could be getting crushed, but it really just looks horribly inconvenient, which I think matches the character better. <laughs> now, here is something I didn't realize about this. And this was pointed out on Twitter to me by Brian Gooney. He shared a cover to Fantastic Four number 244 by John Byrne. This is a sort of a, a tribute or homage cover. I didn't realize that. So uh, on the original Fantastic Four 244 cover, it has got the hand of Galactus, but the hand is open, sort of cupped around uh, Frankie Ray in the form of Nova. So he here, uh, where the alteration is, so there you've got the, the the fist open, and here the fist has been closed around Nort. So it's a it's a similar cover. Both are Galactus or or Mister Nebula themed, uh, but the but the nod is definitely there. So obviously Adam Hughes was thinking about that. Yeah, it's a it's a great little parody cover, and you actually yeah. kind of forget the fact that Nort is a cosmic character. Yeah, it's just definitely not something you would think of. That's absolutely true, and I, I'm glad that Adam Hughes included the Kirby crackle. You know, once I realized that it's an FF cover, it's like oh okay, this all makes perfect sense oh now, yeah there's a lot of kirby goodness in this one there's a lot of cool stuff in there and that so you got to use kirby crackle so something else we got to mention is in the corner underneath the issue number this is the beginning of something cool folks uh starting here we are getting corner box heroes much like marvel through the 80s had those corner boxes with their characters there dc in the 90s started putting their characters on the top left hand corner of their issue so here you've got a cool little shot of booster and beetle arm in arm standing there right beneath the 36 in the price, and they will continue to appear sporadically until about the breakdowns crossover, and they'll alternate between uh, Booster and Beetle, and other times it'll be Fire and Ice. Now, I, I did a little research on this because I, I couldn't remember whether this was a line-wide kind of thing. So I looked it up. Sure enough, the Superman of Flash books had been doing sort of this corner image for a while at this point. Right about this same time, the Batman books start doing it. Uh, then also Green Lantern and Firestorm and Hawk and Dove and Mr. Miracle and Starman and Justice League Europe will start shortly after that. So all of those do it as well. But then there's a whole bunch of books that on DC that don't do it. Like Captain Adam doesn't do it. Checkmate doesn't. Doctor Fate. New Titans. Huntress. Legion. Suicide Squad. New Gods. El Diablo. None of those do. Some of those are more direct market, a little higher price point. Maybe that's part of it. But otherwise, I can't figure out the rationale behind some did, some don't. 
Yeah, I think maybe the fact that it's direct market has something to do with it, because if this is something that's going out on the newsstand, the the purpose of having those characters in the, the top corner box is because when you're on a spinner rack, most of the cover is going to be obscured by the book in right. front of it. So if you can get a full character shot of a character like, oh, Blue Beetle Booster Gold, I'm going to grab that one, that that and maybe the, the title is all you're going to see. So it gives you that quick little shorthand to let you know, hey, that's the one I want to grab. Yeah, I just, I, I think Captain Adam, Suicide Squad, and El Diablo were all direct, mar- uh, I mean, uh, newsstand as well, but I, I don't know for sure. And it could also be an editorial thing too. Maybe like certain editors were doing it. I don't know. Yeah, it might fit with the tone of the book as well. Yeah. Well, if anybody at home knows, uh, drop a comment out there. I'd love to hear from you. All right, let's get into the issue itself, folks. Plot and Breakdown by Keith Giffen, script by J.M.D. Mateus. Guest pencil of this issue, Tom Artis, I guess is how you say it, A-R-T-I-S. Inker is Art Nichols, letters Bob LePan, colors is Gene D'Angelo, assistant editor is Kevin Dooley, and editor is Andy Helfer. The issue itself is called Nort by Nortwest. <laughs> Mike, why don't you start us off? So, looking out on the Pacific Ocean, Nort, the Green Lantern of Sector 68, or is it 69, and way better superhero than Hal Jordan, is thinking deepish thoughts. But mostly he's just bored. Having toured the planet Earth, he's now craving adventure, thrills, and excitement, so he figures it's time to drop back in on those swell guys and gals in the JLI. They always have something kind of disaster going on. And meanwhile, on the planet Cairn, the headquarters of the private space cops of the acronymized, acronymized legion, <laughs> you know, the one with the dots? Yeah, with uh, the dots. There we go. <laughs> an alien prisoner is being set free. After utilizing the greatest legal loophole of all time, crossing his fingers behind his back while promising that he's retired from his career of criminal locating, he is released from custody. Getting his personal items from the evidence locker, he is free to ride the spaceways and soliloquize melodramatically again. Now clad in his armor and pulled through the stars by his cosmic skis, the Scarlet Skier is free to seek his long-delayed revenge on the Green Lantern who arrested him in the first place, Nort. Meanwhile, back at the New York Embassy, Nort is brushed off by every JLI member he offers both assistance to or just to hang out with, so he's back to where he began, bored. But then, something red flashes from the sky to crash into Central Park. Emerging from the crater with his cosmic skis broken, the Scarlet Skier wastes no time monologuing before being found by his dreaded canine foe, who doesn't immediately recognize him. What follows is a battle that is less like a superhero fight and more like a schoolyard brawl as the Skier loses all composure and simply attacks Nort with his bare hands screaming. Back at the embassy, Scott fields a call from the police about the fight in the park. Eventually, remembering that he possesses a green lantern ring, Nort distracts the skier long enough to pound him through the street with a giant green fist and onto the back of a passing subway car below. I'll take it from here. Mr. Miracle and Fire arrive at the scene of the fight and find Nort under arrest by the police. Nort is left in the custody of the JLI and they return to the embassy. Meanwhile, Scarlet Skier wanders the subway platforms rejected by numerous passersby. After exhausting his melodramatic cliches, Skier resorts to mindless violence and blasts a subway train. Back at the embassy, Nort tells the history of the Scarlet Skier in a very dramatic fashion. The Scarlet Skier used to zip around space locating suitable worlds for his master. The Skier would signal his master, who would then arrive in his massive planet-sized spaceship. The Scarlet Skier's master is dramatically revealed to be Mr. Nebula, planetary designer. 
Yes, it is the Silver Surfer and Galactus parody, folks. You were not imagining that. Mr. Nebula, who stands about 40 feet high, visits worlds and completely redecorates the planets to his high standard of color and design. When complete, the planets are unrecognizable, and then he moves on to the next world. Mr. Miracle doesn't believe any of this nonsense. Well, Fire and Oberon want to check on the Scarlet Skier to ensure he doesn't call Mr. Nebula. Meanwhile, on top of the World Trade Center, yeah, the jokes just got real awkward, folks. Uh, At the World Trade Center, the Scarlet Skier is depressed due to his broken cosmic skis. And he's run out of power, and he's also run out of melodrama. With that, the Skier leaps off the building, intending to take his own life, but is rescued by Nort. Though furious that Nort has foiled his plans once again, they broker a truce, as Nort promises to fix the Scarlet Skier's cosmic skis, and then Nort agrees to allow the skier to defeat Nort. Yeah, it's not not exactly Nort's most logical plan. Unsurprisingly, it goes horribly wrong, and Nort accidentally destroys the cosmic skis. The issue ends with Nort and Scarlet Skier sitting by the ocean on a boulder. After being asked to be Nort's sidekick, the skier shoves Nort off the rock, and he falls into the ocean. In the next issue box, it says, We start our third year with a story that will introduce two new characters, and hints at the return of an old, powerful, and, quote, mean is my middle name, end quote, Justice League foe, and the beginning of what happened to Blue Jay and Silver Sorceress. All right, Mike. So this was very, very Nordish. What did yes. you think of the issue? Oh, I, I love this one. I'm, I'm a big fan of Nord. I know that he tends to be fairly polarizing. A lot of these kind of characters do. The sort of humor characters, like they think that he makes the book something that can't be taken seriously. I mean, even a book like JLI, which is kind of a humor action book. Uh, but I love Nord. I, I think that you can go a long way with Nord. And I think that the reason that he works is because he's not just a clown. He, you know, you look at a character like, say, Jar Jar Binks, and yeah, they're both kind of clownish. They do pratfalls, they wear vests. But I think Nort has humanity underneath it. I mean, ultimately, he's kind. That, I mean, yeah, he's a dork and things go over his head and he's not really the smart, smartest guy in the Justice League. <laughs> but he has empathy. I mean, th- there's an empathy for the skier that the other Justice Leaguers don't have. He genuinely feels bad for him, is willing to throw a fake fight for him to just make him feel better. And I think that that right off the bat, it, it makes me like Nort. That he's not mean. He's not stupid in the in the sense that he does get things. He does catch on to things that other people don't. He's just kind of a dork. I hadn't thought about the fact that his heart's in the right place. You make a good point there. And that is something that's sort of endearing about Nord. And as, as you said, he's very polarizing. As we've been going through this read-read of Justice League, I've been watching carefully, wondering about Nord's involvement. Up to this point, every Nord appearance, I've gone in a bit nervous. And I said, okay, is this is this the point where it becomes too much? And every Nord appearance up to this point has been great. It's like, wow, no, that was the perfect amount of Nord, and it was really, really funny. And this is the first time where he's really gotten as much of a spotlight as he has. I mean, he's got a full, whatever it is, 22 pages or whatever here. So I I think I know your answer, but I'll ask you, uh, given the entire issues dedicated to him, is this amount of Nord too much, or is this amount of Nord just right? I think this is just right, because it's not like he has to basically be the head of a book every month. And I don't think he would work if you made him the lead character of an ongoing title. But I think he's a great side character who shows up every so often. And it was weird because I started thinking about where the Green Lantern Corps was at the time of this. And if I can remember correctly, they'd basically been wiped out. I think there was only about three or four rings. There was Hal, John, Guy, Nort, and Chip, I think, at this point. I think this is the era before the Green Lantern book got relaunched. So... 
Nort's kind of free to go wherever he wants, and he just kind of shows up at random times in this book. He never really hangs around for a long time. He shows up because he's bored or wants to hang out with people, and then he just kind of disappears for a few more issues after that. Yeah, you're right. At this point, uh, the Green Lantern book had been canceled, and they were doing the Emerald Dawn miniseries at this point, so they're just getting ready to almost relaunch the Green Lantern book, and he will become a presence there. They'll do some storylines focusing on him there. Uh, I, I would say I think he's handled better in Justice League than he was in Green Lantern, because I, I think at his core, he works better as uh, a comic foil or someone to make us look at a situation differently. So um, for, for myself, as far as is this just the right amount of Nord or too much, I'm not sure. This is the, this is the first one where I struggled a bit, and I don't know whether it's maybe the art or maybe it's the Mr. Nebula. I, I, and honestly, I think part of it is I think some of the story is them planning ahead. Because in the letters page, they mention to watch out for the annual, which will be Justice League Antarctica, oh. featuring the Injustice League, Norton, Scarlet Skier. They say that in the comments. So already at this point, when they wrote this issue, they were already planning ahead for what they were going to do with Norton, Scarlet Skier next. So I think to some extent, this issue is intended to set that up. So maybe that's where some of my struggles coming from is, is sort of not not to draw us down a, a rabbit hole, but like Iron Man 2. Uh, so, you know, one of the things people constantly would mention about Iron Man 2 is like, oh, it's a good movie, but there's too much setup for the future. Yeah. Maybe that's where I'm I'm feeling that here. I'm not sure. I, I'm not negative on it, but I'm just not in love with it yet. Maybe by the end of our conversation, I will come around because you've already making me start to feel better uh, when, when I think about uh, the, about how kind he was to Scarlet Skier. That's a good point. Yeah, like you said, he means well, and he he's not especially great at it, but if you really look at it, you could have kind of a sweethearted dummy like Nort get one of the most powerful weapons in the universe, or you could give it to a brilliant sociopath like Vril Dox or something. I would much rather give that Green Lantern ring to Nort because I know that he's not going to be cruel with it. But here's the other thing. I think the question of whether this goes too far, I don't think it has anything to do with Nort or the skier. I think it's probably Mr. Nebula, which might be a bit too silly for a non-parody book. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't actually show up except in those flashbacks to get, give background to the Scarlet Skier, but he might be too silly for the mainstream DC universe that this might be, you know, like when Marvel would do things like, you know, Brand Eck or, you know, those kind of what weird, the? yeah, what the, those kind of parody books. He seems like a character that would appear in Mad Magazine rather than actually think that this guy is floating around the DC universe somewhere. But I think that's the part where it feels like it might go a little bit too far. But who knows? Maybe he's an unreliable narrator a lot of this. I, I'm fine with him being there, but it might be just a little bit too silly. I, I was just going to say, we know with hindsight that Mr. Nebula is a, a real thing and he will show up. But you're right. At reading this in real time, you could have very easily gone down the unreliable narrator function of uh, Nort and just going, okay, obviously Nort doesn't know what he's talking about. So, so yeah. I, I got a question here and, and I don't know the answer and apparently no one on Twitter does either because no one helped me out. But so Green Lantern and Silver Surfer, uh, there's been a lot of comparisons drawn to those characters over the years. And in fact, when DC and Marvel would team up, they would sometimes throw the Green Lantern and Silver Surfer together. And I think this might be the first time that we've ever seen representations of those two characters or two types of characters, even though this one's tongue-in-cheek, ever together in an issue. Because we've got essentially a Silver Surfer analog. We've got a Green Lantern. I mean, he is a Green Lantern, but he's really more like a Green, you know, kind of an analog. Yeah, he, Either way. Yeah, he's Nord. 
but I think this may be the first time they've ever been thrown together in a book. So uh, if anyone else can think of a, another example out there, please let me know, but I, I can't. Yeah. And, I, and there's another question, Shaggy. I want to know where you stand on this. Uh, Nort's face. This is this is the way his <laughs> character's been designed is really weird over the years. Changes all the every artist. Like constantly. And sometimes it'll even change with the same artist. It seems kind of like <laughs> there's this game of telephone that happens where his face just kind of shifts. <laughs> sure, and by sure. The, by the end, he like he starts out in, in JLI number 10, and he's kind of a doggish humanoid alien guy. He's furry. He shakes himself off when he gets wet. And that's the Kevin McGuire version. Yeah, the Kevin McGuire version. He has kind of a regular face where he's kind of an alien. He's kind of dog-like, but he has a more humanoid nose. And that's kind of the version of Nort we see on the cover by Adam Hughes here. And I think this might be the first appearance of the second face design of Nort, where he's kind of like a funny animal character, where he's got kind of a bushy terrier mustache and much more of a black dog nose. And this is kind of Joe Staten, when he would draw him later in Green Lantern, drew him much more like this. And then you look at how Kevin Maguire draws him now, he kind of draws him as sort of an amalgamation of both of those Norts, where he's a little bit of the classic alien humanoid Nort and a little bit of the kind of cartoon dog Nort. I don't know. So do you have a Nort face preference? I am struggling. I have really been trying to figure this out for a while now because it's it's sort of like a, as if I, I'm not an artist. But if I was an artist and I just can't get this concept out of me, I know what Nort should look like to me, but I can't articulate it and I can't find it. So it's sort of like almost maybe an amalgamation of my head. Like the Joe Staten one, like you said, is too far with the giant bushy mustache. This one is, is getting closer to my Nort in my head. Even though Kevin McGuire established the look, that is not my version of Nort. It, the, the nose is too pointed and looks a little too human for my liking. So, I don't know. I'm, I'm warming up to this version, uh, even though it does look very Joe Staten-y. I, I, I have to get back to you because I just can't figure out which version of Nort uh, works for me the best. Yeah, I don't know. And even look at modern Joe Staten ones. Like the, I think the JLI Omnibus, the second volume is coming out. And I think there's a Nort picture on the cover. And even the, the action figure of Nort that's based on uh, Kevin Maguire art still looks like a mix of the two. So I'm like, they're sort of informing each other's art. So it's not like you sort of reassert yourself. It's, it's really weird. It's kind of like the way the cat-like version of the Beast was drawn in X-Men comics for a long time. Kept evolving, yeah. Yeah, it's like sometimes he would look like a panther. Sometimes he would look like just the Beast's, like classic Beast with a different head. Sometimes his body shape would change. And it was just all up to the artist. And I think Nort is kind of like that. I think my ideal Nort is the, the one on the cover, where he kind of has pointy ears rather than floppy ears. He has a little bit of kind of a faux hawk. I kind of like the classic one. It's weird because I used to be a total Joe Staten design for Nord mm-hmm. because that was, I think, the first one that I saw. That was the trading card of Nord. But over time, I'm more kind of the classic one. And as I think that the less of a cartoon character he looks like, the less it feels like he's breaking the universe. It, the more he just kind of feels like an alien who just happens to be kind of a dork. Sure. I'm kind of getting with you on this cover, too. I kind of like the the shape of the face. I, I really like the nose not being a black, you know, uh, fleshy dog nose. I, I really like that his nose here is, is sort of humanish, but not as pointy as Kevin McGuire's would make it. Yeah. And, and he's not fully, you know, he doesn't fully look like a cartoon character. It doesn't have sort of a Roger Rabbit effect when he's standing next to regular superheroes. He yeah. 
feels like he could exist in that world. He's just kind of more like a regular guy with a regular guy type build rather than somebody who looks like a Greek god. I'm with you. So since we're talking about the finer points of Nort, I'll ask you the next question in that regard. Nort with an apostrophe or Nort without an apostrophe? I don't know. I, I, I could go either way. I look at my notes right now and I've put the apostrophe in them with the capital G, capital N, then O-R-T is small. But I could it, – it's inconsistent even in this book. And I think yes, for a long – I think he didn't have an apostrophe for a long time. I think this might be the first uh, comic where he has the apostrophe. Or at least if he did, it was pretty early on. I, I had all this information documented at one point. I, I don't have it in front of me now. I actually asked James DiMatteis about it. And he basically said he thinks they just lost the thread somewhere under the apostrophes. <laughs> so whatever whatever's in issue number 10 when Nord first appears, this was the original intention. But then it just went back and forth, back and forth, different editors and such. And so that now he says, you know, either one works just fine. And uh, it's just interesting because, you know, Nort has got the apostrophe, but then even just the name of the issue is Nort by Northwest without the apostrophe. So, yeah, it's, you know, you just, all you can do is shrug. Um, right. I will say Nort is not completely incompetent in this issue, that he's not great. He's not the, like I said, he's not the smartest guy. He's not the quickest guy. He's not somebody who I think wants to get into a fight, but he's not afraid to get into a fight. He actually does manage to distract the skier along enough to knock him with a big green fist. It's a great moment when he does that, actually. Oh, it's, it's also It's also really funny. It's great, you know, and there's a little moments you realize that Nort might be, you don't know how dumb he actually is, or how much of him is just doing kind of shtick, because occasionally he can be really witty, like when he's flying out there to explaining the skier to both Scott and B, Scott starts making fun of, you know, Nort having a ridiculously named character, like, you know, the Scarlet Skier in his rogues gallery, and he's like, Oh, hey, you know, it basically points out Scott's living in a bit of a glass house, knowing he has villains like Vermin Vundabar and Granny Goodness. And and this is the other thing with a glass house there is that Scott is from a planet with a guy with cosmic skis. So I really don't know if he can make fun. That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> I will say, though, again, Nort, not completely incompetent. I mean, he did single-handedly fight off Manga Khan's fleet. He knocks out bad guys. He's actually really powerful. And I think that's one of the things that, that makes him to me, not the kind of anchor that somebody like Jar Jar Binks is. If you look at the Phantom Menace, and I don't want to just rip the band-aid off of this wound again, but... <laughs> If you look at how Jar Jar is used in that movie, he barely interacts with other characters. He's always doing a comedy routine, and most of the time, other characters kind of ignore him. And sometimes, you know, that he's like a ghost almost, where it's almost if he disturbs the world enough, then they notice him, like he's shaking chains or something. But it's really weird when you watch that movie how almost nobody talks to Jar Jar. It's only if he starts messing around with, like, a vendor or his tongue shoots out at the dinner table – other than that, they just kind of ignore him. It's like they want him to leave or something. But with Nort, he's constantly interacting with them. And if you're annoyed with the character, so are the other JLIers. So it doesn't feel like you're being gaslit by it. It doesn't feel like they're trying to tell you how great he is because, you know, they're constantly yelling at him and telling him to go away. And it's that's kind of the Nort joke that he uses over and over again that I really don't get sick of. And he's like, you're yelling at me again. What's that all about? <laughs> they are kind of mean to him. Oh, they're horrible to him. They're absolutely and, – and if you think back, it's interesting. I mean, the, it starts all the way back on his very first appearance when he first shows up. The first time anyone refers to him, basically Hal Jordan just totally bags on him before he's even uh, done anything. Hal yeah, he's Jordan. already come, Jordan's the worst, no doubt about that. But, uh, but anyway, Jordan's already bagging on the character. And so – 
I don't actually, I'd have to sit there and actually map it out, trying to think what has Nort actually done wrong a lot. It's not that much. He's just sort of irritating. Yeah, he's kind of an irritating guy, but he doesn't screw anything up. He's not putting people in danger. He's not, I mean, unlike Jar Jar, he didn't give massive emergency political powers over to a future (laughs) dictator. He didn't destroy the Republic. So, I mean, I don't really know, aside from him being kind of, like I mentioned, kind of a dork. And, you know, being full of dad jokes, he's real and sometimes inappropriate moments. But frequently, I think Nord is really funny. Like, there's a moment during the storyline where they were um, trying to get Scott Free back from Manga Con and then later from Apocalypse a few issues back. Yeah. Where Lobo shows up and starts threatening people. And, you know, Rocket Red tries to talk to um, Lobo and says, hey, I don't want to fight with you. I don't want my wife to be a widow. I don't want my children to be orphans. And Nord pipes up with, hey, as long as your wife's alive, they're technically not orphans. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's funny. Trying to that's, help. That's genuinely funny. And I, I like that about him. He he seems to be a guy who does not have the personality type that you expect to be a superhero. But he's not the worst choice in a lot of ways. I mean, if you look at the stuff Guy Gardner has done, um, yeah. you know, you can say, I, I love Guy is one of my favorite characters, period. But how many times does he outright single-handedly invade the Soviet Union and potentially start World War III. I can name at least two instances of that happening where, you know, he seriously endangers the safety of the world. Like, nukes could be in the air because of stuff that Guy Gardner has done. Nort doesn't do any of that, but they still get way more hostile to him when he shows up. Even, you know, quote-unquote nice characters like Scott. Scott's a nice guy, but he just gets really snippy when Nort shows up. Well, you even mentioned it, like, you know, Nort kind of single-handedly took out the cluster before. So, I mean, he helps. So, yeah. And, you know, I, I, I like that they acknowledge that he successfully arrested the Scarlet Skier. I mean, it's his only successful arrest, but, you know, they acknowledge that he did something right, which is good. Yeah, um, there's, there are worse people you could give a Green Lantern ring to. There really are. And I, you know, he's not a failure as a superhero. I think if superheroes were real, there would be a lot of Norts out there. And, you know, they're not necessarily the most brilliant tacticians. They're not going to be the people that are going to come up with a plan for everything. There's going to be way more Norts than Batmans. Well, do you see in uh, in this version of Norton, in this particular issue, do you see Art Carney's Ed Norton in here? Because, I mean, that was one of the templates for Norton, was Ed, Art Carney's uh, Ed Norton. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I, You know, he kind of has this laid-back type B personality, where he's happy to roll with the punches. He's not infuriating in the way sometimes people act like he is, but he's he's kind of game to go along with it. You can see that, that same sort of Art Carney influence on a character like a smiley bone in the bone series where I think Smiley Bone is another great example of how to do a character like this right, where you can see him as sort of a clown, but he can also have a serious moment where he can either be sad or angry or just kind. And Nord is kind here, where you see a kind of a humanity under the fact that he's not just a guy doing a comedy routine all of the time. hes I was about to say he's a human being. He's a, I don't know, canine sapien? I don't really know what he is. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, but hes he's a person. And I think it would be kind of fun to have Nord around. You know, I, he doesn't really make your life that much harder. He probably tells more dad jokes than you want to hear, but he'd be kind of a, a pleasant pre- a presence to have around in the same way that I think like Rocket Red would be. You know, you said something earlier about him not endangering life, and that got me thinking. I, I'm going to transition a bit here into 
Mr. Nebula now, the the planetary designer. You talked about the endangering life and stuff, and I started thinking about Mr. Nebula. They talk about how he comes in and redecorates the planets, but at no point did they ever mention any threat to the planet whatsoever. Uh, in fact, it sounds like he just comes in, redecorates, and leaves. Now, he moves some terrain around with these giant lasers, but there was no indication that anyone's actually injured. So I started wondering, how dangerous is Mr. Nebula, really? I don't know. I mean, there's a, there's a scale that you could go on. One is that he just makes everything look weird. Like, I think there was a planet that, it, you know, you assume that a planet would be spherical, but it's like this weird tube that's sort of shaped like one of those weird puzzles that you get at, like, Spencer's Gifts, and it's kind of like this odd, weird, twisted tube, you know, circle thing. It actually looks a lot like Galactus's world ship in the Secret Wars comic book. Oh, it does. Yes, it does. So it's, there's a kind of weird Kirby kind of vibe. And then on the other end of the spectrum, he could be killing every single person on that planet while he's basically changing the, you know, topography. This could I guess be that's like possible, but they just don't tell us that. Yeah, I don't think this is a dark enough book that they would say that outright, but it could be like the way that they describe the Genesis missile in in Star Trek Three, that if you fire okay. that at a at a planet that has people on it, they just be replaced. Yeah, yeah. And so the implications there, they just don't dwell on it. Gotcha. Yeah, I I don't think this is the sort of story where you do dwell on that because it just it would be too much of a discordant tone because yeah. they, they want to have fun with this and it's it's just weird that instead of eating the planet that he would basically turn it into a crazy you know he's an interior decorator but I, I just want to say I love the design of both Mr. Nebula and especially the Scarlet Skier Scarlet Skier looks amazing oh I love it I think doing pastiches of, of Kirby designs is definitely something that's fun and I think that Kirby definitely created characters that if you look at Doctor Doom and Galactic They've been tweaked over the years since they first appeared, but it's amazing how unaltered they are because Kirby creates characters that just look timeless and crazy and weird. These sort of cosmic gods and and it, they just they look amazing. And I think that they did a really good job of kind of approximating the way Kirby would design a character. I love the Scarlet Skier's armor. I love the way that rather than riding a surfboard, he's basically like, what is it when you're pulled from the back of a boat? Uh, well, I mean, like water skiing or like he's being pulled by a jet ski is kind of like what we're looking at because he, he doesn't actually have skis on. He's just yeah. he's just out there with his feet out. Yeah. Yeah. He's getting pulled by this device that he pull. He has like handles on and it pulls him through space. And it's just kind of a cool design. And, you know. If you really think about it, yeah, this is ridiculous, but is it any more ridiculous than the Silver Surfer? If we hadn't first encountered the Silver Surfer as a character concept when we were kids, and this was a new character now, would we think it was ridiculous? It kind of is. Oh, but it's ludicrous that he rides around on a surfboard. <laughs> it is bizarre, but it's kind of awesome at the same time. And I think comics, uh, you know, these sort of crazy classic comics do that weird, wonderful mix of ridiculous and awesome that, you know, yeah, this guy's a parody, but it wouldn't be that hard for me to see this guy being treated seriously and not altering anything about him except maybe, you know, Mr. Nebula. Well, Giffen and Demetrius clearly were sort of hovering around this Galactus thing for a while, because this isn't the first Galactus rift they've done. You know, Manga Khan started off, actually, as a Galactus rift. If you go back and read those earliest issues where he appears, uh, it really gives you a Galactus vibe. Now, that one was, uh, in addition to being Galactus, it was also based on Jeanette Khan and Stan Lee. But here, I mean, it's much more of a blatant Galactus rip, uh, riff, uh, without a doubt. And speaking of Manga Khan, I like that they use uh, the, the Manga Khan school of melodrama as a, a 
reoccurring gag throughout this. And I feel like it's actually used, like sometimes that joke falls flat after a few too many times, but it, I think it works really well in here. It's, it's funny. It works well. You know, Nort uses it as a bit of subterfuge to, to bonk the guy. And I'm, I was pretty impressed with it. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I mean, this is a fun book. I would be curious how, you know, this is kind of the point in JLI history where because you can sort of see it transition from a serious book with humorous elements into sort of a humor book with action elements. Mm-hmm. And every so often, like, they're about to do a storyline in this series that goes really serious and dark. And oh, then yeah. they go for a few years where it's kind of it's kind of light and fluffy. And then right at the end, they go dark again right before the, the Giffen to DiMatteis era ends. And if you think about the stuff that, like, the, especially the stuff with Despero coming up, uh, maybe kind of getting ourselves kind of ready for that by doing things that are the exact opposite is the right path to go. That if you know you're going to go dark, we might as have some fun stories with Nort before you go there. So that by the time you get to the stuff coming up, you're not super depressed and it can have that maximum impact. And, and that's a very logical thing to do. I've always said this is the kind of book where you, you fall in love with the characters because you laugh with them. So they become like friends or family. So when the dramatic things hit, it, it hits it hits that much more of a punch. And um, Dimitri's even said something about this recently, not about this specifically, but I was reading an old issue of uh, Spider-Man, and I'll talk more about that in the feedback, but in there, it, it's a Frogman issue, and it's hilarious. DiMatteis wrote it. Uh, it. It's a spoof on JLI the whole way through it, and the reason he did that issue was because it was right in between two heavy storylines of Spectacular Spider-Man, and they, they needed a break. They needed a breather, so it gave him a funny issue, and that is kind of where this is going into... Now, we just had a funny one with the, the Justice League Resort, but you're right. We're heading into something very heavy coming up. Yeah, it's, it's good to have a palate cleanser. And I think in a lot of ways, you have to kind of take Justice League International and put it in the context of the stuff coming out at the time. At this point, we should be kind of right in the middle of or of, of a British invasion of comics where there's a lot more postmodern stories, a lot of darker stories, a lot literary stories. And I think in a lot of ways, JLI was kind of a counterbalance to that, that a lot of books were going or starting to go really dark. And having a book like this that feels very modern but you know it's gritty in the fact that there's these little bits of just human realism that other characters don't have but it's not grim it's actually very fun because it feel like you said it's a hangout book it's it's definitely you know these characters so that when serious stuff does happen it you feel it you you have that emotional impact to it because you're not used to seeing that sort of stuff happen it's kind of like this is kind of a weird thing there's, there's a archie comics put out a a predator versus archie book right right and it's drawn in the classic Archie style. And when you see violence in the classic Archie style, it is jarring as hell to see horrible things happen to these characters. But they're drawn as if they're in a classic Archie digest. And I think in a lot of ways, um, it kind of happens here where you see these characters dealing with, you know, Nord and the Scarlet Skier. And then, oh, my God, the stuff that's about to happen in the next couple issues goes dark. And I think sometimes this kind of primes you for that. And it makes that stuff have that much more impact because bad things like that don't typically happen to these characters. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about the art in this issue, too, because Tom Artis is a fill-in here. And I, I think one of the things you can kind of see is, you know, last issue had several inkers. This one's got a fill-in artist. So we're, we're starting to see that Adam Hughes is, is probably struggling to keep up with the, the monthly schedule. Because, I mean, it's the amount of detail he puts into his books are absolutely astonishing. So the fact that he could even come close to a monthly schedule is pretty amazing and quite a testament to him. And they make a reference in some of the letters page later on 
it was saying how they are sort of staggering fill-in issues so that uh, Adam can sort of maintain a schedule. So in this case, I, I like Tom Artis. I, I remember some of his work from other books before this. So and he does have a slightly cartoon style, and you know they probably picked him because they thought he'd be a good fit for the comedic sort of Norse Scarlet Skier thing, and they had Art Nichols there to, to add any needed polish. I would say I think Nort and Scarlet Skier look fantastic. I think they look really great. There, there's definitely, and also even uh, Mr. Nebula. There's a, you you talked about all the character designs, absolutely phenomenal. But there's also kind of a slick polished look to them. I think they look great. Now I don't know that that carries over to some of the regular human characters though. Like I feel like Mr. F- Miracle and Fire weren't exactly his strongest characters. Uh, I don't feel like they look great. I don't know. Did, did you get a certain sense as you were going through the issue? I think you're being fair. I don't want to not no pun intended dog on the guy, but I also <laughs> know that the breakdowns of the issue were done by Keith Giffen. So I have to say, knowing what I know about Keith Giffen, I wouldn't be surprised if he designed Mr. Nebula and Scarlet mm. Skier because Scarlet Skier looks like a Keith Giffen character. That is true. And and Giffen loves, loves, loves Kirby stuff. So you make a fair point. So, I mean, the, the storytelling is all there. I know Keith Giffen is good at that. And I don't want to give him all the credit for the stuff that, that's being done in this issue. And But I think you're, you're right. I think there's some characters that he's much better at drawing than others. The cosmic stuff looks great. The Scarlet Skier looks great. Like you said, Nebula looks great. Nort looks good. Yeah, the, the standard cast looks off and I don't really know why they look weirdly angular and rushed. I don't know. The impression I get, and I'm just speculating here, is that it looks like the artist has a lot more fun drawing some characters than others, and it shows in the art. That could very well be. And a lot of Tom artists I know uh, depends on his inkers, too. I mean, Art Nichols is very accomplished, and if you go back and look at uh, the Secret Origins issues that Tom artists did, or maybe the Who's Who entries, they vary widely depending on who his inker is. Um, Some are just better fits for him. Some of them maybe were cleaning up a little more. I'm not quite sure. So I, w- I would say Art Nichols, compared to some of the stuff I saw in Secret Origins, is a really good inker for Tom Artis. But like you said, yeah, there's certain characters that get a lot more loving attention. That's for sure. Yeah, but looking at that cover, I gotta say, there's a an alternate universe where Adam Hughes drew this issue, and I would love to see it. Oh, without a doubt. So just a few more things before we get uh, moving on here. So uh, page 13, there, I had to I had to Google this. There is a joke about uh, where, where Nort has smashed the Scarlet Skier into the subway system, and Fire and Mr. Miracle show up, and Fire says, where does this hole go? And Nort says, BMT, I think. And I, I looked at this thing forever, and I'm like, BMT, that's not a word. And I looked at it, I'm like, I thought maybe a letter had dropped out or something. Mm-hmm. Then I Googled it. Well, I don't live in New York, folks, so I didn't know that BMT is Brooklyn Manhattan Train transit system, which is the underground road, uh, underground train. So, oh, well, my bad. Terribly sorry. Other stuff worth noting, Mr. Miracle does appear in this issue, and uh, last episode of the show, we covered the Mr. Miracle special, where Scott gets taken off into space, and back home on Earth is a robot duplicate covering for him. Well, this issue, even though it was published after that special came out, they haven't quite caught up with that. In fact, Mr. Miracle makes a reference to the upcoming appearance that he's going to do there in that issue. So, we've still got another issue or two until this series catches up with the Mr. Miracle special, and we'll end up with the robot doppelganger here in the Justice League series. 
So, dude, uh, page 19, World Trade Center. Woof. Yeah, man. it does pop up a lot. It, it's definitely one of the big landmarks of New York City. So when you're going to do a, a shot of the city, it, there's pretty much two different uh, buildings you can put up there. You can either do the, the Trade Towers or you can do the Statue of Liberty. And yeah. it's going to show I, up, you know? Well, it's interesting that it, I actually – I'll take the opposite position. It, you're right. It should show up. But at least in my experience, it doesn't show up a lot. Um, so I, I just find that kind of surpri- – I'm surprised that – I don't run into it more often, especially since I'm reading this book and it's been about New York since issue one. I, I can't – I mean, maybe one or two times it may have shown up, but that would be it. So it, I, I'm surprised I don't see it more often. But boy, it's uh, – especially in an issue that's all comedy, very sobering when you get to that point. Like, ooh, you know. Yeah, he's going to kill himself off of, off of it Right, too. exactly. It's like, okay, <laughs> it's not it's not the comic's fault, but boy, it's, uh, you know, oof. It is weird when you start to, to see it in old movies and things. I know that there's a old King Kong poster where he has one foot on each one of the towers. I yep. mean, there's, it, it does pop up. I mean, I know that it was taken out of the last minute from the Spider-Man movie. Well, that so, famous trailer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. It is a little bit weird. I guess maybe I'm, I'm, we're far enough from it that it doesn't jar me the way that it would have maybe 10 years ago. But I'm like, oh, hey, I guess that's a thing. Um, Still takes you out of the story though. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little bit weird, but I guess, you know, it's a, it's a landmark. I mean, maybe there's a universe where the Statue of Liberty was, was destroyed and it would be weird seeing that in everything, including like Superman the movie. Right. Right. Yeah. Planet of the Apes. Yeah, any of that. Planet yeah. of the, oh God. If, yeah. Oh, geez, I don't even know what that would do to the end of Planet of the Apes because it's so it is the end of Planet of the Apes. Right. It's so iconic. Spoilers. Yeah. So. <laughs> it was Earth all along. Um Shh, don't tell him. <laughs> I think I think we can we can get away with spoilers from 1968. But um, I don't know, man. In in this environment, I, I got spoiled on Ma- uh, Mandalorian recently, so I'm pretty sensitive to this. <laughs> oh yeah. I had a friend who got spoiled on uh, the Sixth Sense in a in a newspaper review. Oh jeez. That's so, a big yeah. one. Um, so you mentioned Acronym Legion. Uh, I'm glad they made an appearance in this. That was kind of cool. Nice continuity nod. Then I started thinking about like, oh, well, I guess Giffen was, did have a hand in creating that series, was involved in it. So I guess it's working your own series into there, but there's nothing wrong with that. It was, it was nice to see a little more of the universe though. Yeah, it's, it's a good piece of continuity. And I think it's, it's the best way to do it. It's like what Marvel always did back in the day, which is you're like, okay, well, we need a wizard character. Might as well use this established wizard that we created, Doctor Strange. Oh, we need a scientist. Might as well be Reed Richards. It's like, oh, we need an alien in prison. Oh, well, Legion exists. They have a prison. So, I mean, yep. it's not really obtrusive because it just makes sense that it would be that. And of course, Keith Giffen's brain would go there. He's writing Legion at that point, isn't he? Uh, he's either still writing it or he, or he's, or he was writing. I can't recall, but he definitely was very attached to that book for, for a long time. Yeah. It's, it's one of his babies. So his brain would go there and it's not, I mean, it was enough of a big thing that I've seen Legion pop up in, in other cosmic books or stories that take place in space. And what I kind of like is that it's not, Legion as if it's a team fighting evil in the universe. It's like, it's the prison and you're looking at basically like nine to five workers who are just doing this stuff. And this is, this is the support crew that keeps everything going. And exactly. It's the space cops. Yep. Yeah. They're space cops. And this is just kind of like, there's a bunch of people who work for a Legion who are never going to appear in the main Legion book because interesting stuff doesn't happen around them. And they're the ones that do the paperwork and mop the floor. And I kind of like that angle because it actually kind of humanizes Legion. It makes it feel more lived in. It just it gives you the impression that this is a thing. It's it feels a little bit like damage control in an odd way. 
Oh, yeah. I was thinking of the uh, Justice League Unlimited episode where the Suicide Squad or Task Force X inf- infiltrates the satellite. But, you know, really what you end up dealing with is a lot of the uh, the lower decks staff, if you will, in that sort of situation. So, yeah. I wonder what those guys get paid. <laughs> it's got to be hazard pay, you know. It's got to be hazard pay. And, I mean, it would be kind of weird because you'd, you'd see, like, Superman and Batman walking around. But your job is just to operate a teleporter and then occasionally, you know, like, the Legion of Doom shows up and probably – kidnaps you or turns you into a robot monkey or something. It just, it would be weird. Well, it's also like, you know, it's like the end of your shift, you're getting ready to go home. And then suddenly the Legion, like you said, the Legion of Doom attacks, but you're like, Hey, uh, Chuck, I got to go clock out. I got to take my daughter to a recital. You guys got this whole thing with Grodd? Okay, cool. Thanks. I mean, cause seriously, at that point, how important are you? Do you, right. you can probably sneak out the back. I think what you do is clock out real fast and get down there before anything starts. Maybe hit the alarm button on your way out, but they don't need me at this point this is a job for superman i mean you might take out the toy man but for sinestro forget it so oh no true. i'm i i i don't know how much they get paid but i know it's not enough to even try to fight the toy man i, I <laughs> there's, there's just a point where that's just out of my level i'm just nope i am not <laughs> that dude is creepy <laughs> and i don't want to especially if he's that weird puppet guy i don't want to deal with that that's just weird I'm sorry. I'm more at the Otis pay grade rather than the Toy Man pay grade. So. Yeah, it's like at best, it's like that episode of The Simpsons where Homer works for uh, Hank Scorpio. It's like maybe I will trip somebody, you know, who's being chased by bad guys while I'm at the vending machine. But I'm not actually going to have to go as far as throwing a punch. I'm not going to fight this guy. <laughs> you know, I'm going to step back and let you guys handle that. I just I mop the place. I know my limits. So yeah. I know my limits. I also know that this is not the way I'm going to die. I'm. <laughs> it's it's like I can be a hero in this moment and probably end up a corpse because I probably would be an unnamed character. And I just, you know, <laughs> they're not going to have a special anniversary issue with my death in it. They're not going to mention me again. You're not going to get a glow in the dark Mike Gillis cover. You're probably no, not. <laughs> I'm, I'm not getting an action figure. I know this well enough. Hey, Bob the Goon got one. You never know. So. Oh, Bob the Goon. Yeah, his hat didn't even fit. <laughs> So two more things. On page 22, I love at the very end when, when uh, Scarlet Skier has had enough of Nort's crap and shoves him into the ocean. It's a cute moment. It's says, bloosh. You know, it's bloosh. And then uh, the, the actually the page number itself sort of explodes like a little bubble popping. So I thought that was a cute little art touch from uh, Tom Artis there. And then uh, the only other thing I wanted to mention specifically is I mentioned at the top of the show that this is a hard issue to find. It's not like it's necessarily valuable or anything, but it is one of the few Justice League America issues that has not been made available digitally, at least hmm. at the time of this recording. It's not available on Comixology. It's not available on DC Universe. Almost every other issue from the Giffen de Mateus era is, and I have no idea why this has never been done. Uh, it is included in the new Omnibus, though, Volume 2, that's shipping right about the time we're recording. So that means the issue has been remastered. So hopefully that means we'll get a digital copy soon. But as of right now, if you want to read it, you either got to buy the you know thousand page omnibus or you got to go uh, find a back issue somewhere. Do you think there's some weird licensing issue that we don't know about that they had to make a change for it? I, I, I don't know I, what I, it could be, but maybe they had to alter it before they were able to release it in that omnibus. I'm, I'm not sure. Like, Tom Artis is the only thing in this issue that's sort of unique. It sticks out in my head. All, all, or maybe the Scarlet Skier, because, you know, um, now that I think about it, Annual Number 4, which is the uh, Antarctica one, which is where the Scarlet Skier shows up next, hasn't been done yet either. So maybe it's that? I, I don't know. If anybody's got any thoughts in the comments, please go out there and let us know. But I, I don't see why. So 
All right, folks. Well, that is issue number 36 of Justice League America. Super fun. Love Nort. Uh, And, uh, you know, I think I'm softening. I think going into this, I was afraid maybe this was too much Nort. And I think you've talked me around that I think this is just the right amount of Nort. But right now, what we need to figure out is what is the funniest bit. So this is where we're going to talk about the... Quahaha Award. This is where we nominate the funniest moment in the issue. Both myself and Mike will pick one moment, and only one will be awarded the coveted Bahaha Award. Mike, you're the guest, so what would you like to nominate for the Bahaha Award? I'm giving it to the last page of the issue. I think that this was the perfect note to end it on. This is uh, Wanna Be My Sidekick and Shove Into the Ocean. I think it's perfect. I think it's just a wonderful little capstone to this issue. I like the fact that they really aren't friends, and I think that... <laughs> I think Scarlet Skier was in a very vulnerable place when he was thrilled to have that fight. And I think that the bloom is off the rose now, and now he's just stuck on Earth with Nort. And the reality of that has sunk in. But you know what? Nort is trying to be nice to the very end. I think he's not being mean with that offer. I think he's genuinely offering to have him as a sidekick. I think it's a it's a nice chalk and cheese kind of uh, odd couple moment where you realize these two are stuck with each other and they're always going to hate each other uh, or not maybe not hate each other but at least Scarlet Skier will hate him and, and uh, one will be the buffoon but it's a, it's a great double act they make a great double act for sure oh so I, I like that page as well it's not my nomination so my nomination is back on page eleven it's during the fight it's something we both commented on earlier. Scarlet Skier and Nort are duking it out, and Nort uh, recognizes some of the dialogue, saying, hey, the heat, you go to the Manga Con School of Melodrama, and they make some jokes about that. And Nort says, my Uncle Newman used to teach there. And Scarlet Skier says, no kidding. And Nort says, no kidding. His specialty was soliloquizing while getting your face punched in. At that moment, he uses his ring to create the giant fist, which comes up behind the Scarlet Skier, knocks him flat, and goes, guess you didn't get to that yet. Because obviously the Scarlet Skier wasn't soliloquizing while he got punched, which is very clever on Nort's part. And then Scarlet Skier falls through into the subway, says, "Uh, I think I was absent that day. So I found that bit very, very funny. Um, It's not so funny in me describing it, (laughs) but when you read it, it's pretty funny. It's a visual medium. So yeah, it's it's one you really have to see. And they're they're both great. It'll be on our gallery for you guys to make your own decisions there. So Mike, we got to decide which one works better. The, The piece here where Nort is actually clever and uses his ring smart and sarcastically or the bit at the end where you get the odd couple situation uh you can go first and then i'll i'll give you my thoughts oh i i'm tempted i'm tempted to side with myself and at the same time i will say the thing that i really like about your choice is it feels like a repudiation to people that go why is this guy even around and it's like no he's not useless and what i like about it is nort is actually clever in these little moments so I, I, I'll stick to my guns, but I will say that's a really good choice, and it's definitely a page that I would show somebody who would assume that this character is just kind of useless. I would agree. I think it's a fun bit. I think it's uh, the joke. It really lands well, too, and it shows how clever Nort is, but I, I'm going to go with yours, because it sort of encapsulates the whole relationship between Scarlet Skier and Nort, and also gives us, uh, propels us in a forward direction of where the relationship's going to go. So I think I'm going to back your play, and I think we're going to award it to the last page where Scarlet Skier shoves Nort into the Pacific Ocean. So, congratulations to Scarlet Skier and Nort. You have won the coveted Bwahaha Award. It is as tangible as the laughter we give you. 
Now, Mike, I need to ask a favor. Uh, would you mind escorting both Nort and Scarlet Skier to our Antarctica embassy? I, I don't want to risk Scarlet Skier contacting Mr. Nebula, and it seems pretty remote and isolated. And it just feels like sticking him in Antarctica. I don't know why. It just seems like the right idea. Do you mind doing that? Uh, I, I suppose. No. I'm not cleaning up after these guys, though. I will take them down there. <laughs> well, I sincerely appreciate that. Now, don't worry, Mike. We will bring you back at the end of the show. And after this podcast promo break, I'm going to head over to the Paris Embassy for the 12th issue of Justice League Europe. I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Dorn. And we want to ask you an important question. Are you sick and tired of other panel discussion shows wasting your time droning on and on about foreign policy, economics, and human rights? Or do you want to hear conversations about things that actually matter? We host a podcast called Radio vs. the Martians. Every month we gather a panel of our nation's finest minds and plunge a rusty prison shank into the heart of tough questions that have an impact on the lives of real people like you. Like, are drivers required to pull over for the Ghostbusters? Is the United Federation of Planets actually an oppressive dictatorship run by guidance counselors? Is Arnold Schwarzenegger secretly a genius? And are we being mean when we laugh at movies that are so bad they're good? So write your congressman and let them know that Radio vs. the Martians is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and on RadioVsTheMartians.com. It was the early 1990s, the Dark Ages. The Transformers toy line was over. Finished. Without toys in the shelves to advertise, the comic book series created to sell them was likewise cancelled after an 80-issue run. Then, the impossible happened. I didn't believe you. I thought you were lying to me. Transformers were back in toy stores. And, perhaps even more importantly, Transformers were back on the comic book shelves as well. But this run of Transformers comic proved to be somewhat different than what we'd seen before. I can implode neutrons! All of a sudden, the battle between the Autobots and Decepticons threatened to have real consequences. That was a low-yield neutron implosion! That was also the precise location of our transport. And brawn! Exploding off of the comic book pages with darker, grittier storylines and vibrant, some might even say, neon colors. The, the very first thing I noticed was a very 90s art style. Truly, this was not your father's Autobot. Not Your Father's Autobot is a 13-episode, limited-run podcast beginning in early 2021. Join me, Mark Baker-Wright, also known as GB Blackrock, and my brother, Nick Wright, as we go through the entire Marvel U.S. run of Transformers Generation 2, issue by issue, as we look at the series that brought Transformers back from oblivion. After this series, Transformers will never be the same. Look for Not Your Father's Autobot on Podbeam via blackrockstoybox.blogspot.com or wherever podcasts may be found. And now, our coverage of Justice League Europe, number 12.
We're back from break, and I'm here with our second co-host for this episode. We've got another international guest. That's right, Justice League International. Get it? Seriously, people, you should be used to this by now. Can you hear my eyes rolling at home because of you people? All right, folks, this issue is set in both Akron, Ohio, and Paris, France, so obviously our guest hails from... Our Argentinian embassy. I'm never going to get this right. However, it is worth mentioning, this is our first guest from South America. Our fourth continent now. We've had North America, Europe, Australia, and now South America. By the way, anyone out there from our Antarctica embassy? If so, drop me a line. Just saying you got a pretty good chance of getting on the show. All right, now back to our guest. This gentleman is a professional psychotherapist, which, now that I think about it, explains a lot about why he was asking me about my mother in the green room before he started recording. Hmm. Oh, well. Maybe he can explain Guy Gardner's mood swings. He also hosts two Spanish-speaking podcasts, one on Batman and one on the Legion of Superheroes. Folks, please help me welcome to the show Mr. Gus Casals. Welcome to the Paris Embassy, Gus. Thanks for being here, man. How you doing? I'm doing great, and thank you so much for having me. You know, I'm, I'm excited, and I was just listening to your intro, and I realized something. You know, if you look at the map and you look where Antarctica is based, probably mm-hmm. I'm the closest you're going to ever get to Antarctica. So, you know, I <laughs> I was thinking about, you know, which one of the transporters to get here, because we do know that there is one in Brazil, which, you know, is, is my neighbor over here. But right. then we have the Antarctica one. I'm not 100% sure I want to go meet those guys over there, but, well, <laughs> it's an option. Considering the mess the Injustice League and uh, Nort have left there, you probably don't want to visit that embassy. Yeah. That's fair to say. Yeah, yeah. You're Might right. be a bit chilly, too. <laughs> you do know, and again, you know, I don't want to rub this on anyone's noses, but, you know, you you have many listeners in Argentina, but also in Brazil, and we beat them to the punch. So, yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. So, yeah, Gus saw an international opportunity. I mean, this is all about politics for him. He looked at the map and said, you know what? I could be the first South American. So he reached out to me, and I had no idea who this guy was, right, other than I say his name every month. And then he comes forward with all this blackmail he's got on me. So, boom, he's on the show. Congratulations. Well played, sir. Well, and now I know all the stuff about your mother also, so. Now, you promised you'd give me the negatives when this was done, so I'm trusting you. <laughs> you know, think about it. Kids today probably don't even know what negatives are. I just realized that with all the digital photos. They probably don't even know what that is. You know, you're right. And, and, <laughs> and again, you know, it's one of those things that are in the vernacular, and, and I'm not sure if they are going to survive or how long they're going to survive, actually. <laughs> Probably until we are all dead and it's just them and the cockroaches. Right, exactly. <laughs> all right, so I got to ask you, guess what is your personal origin story with the JLI? How did you find the book? Any of them, whether it's just like Europe. I mean, there was no Justice League South America. I'm, I apologize on the behalf of DC Comics for that. But how did you discover the book and what made you fall in love with it? So it's interesting what you mentioned, you know, because there were South American versions of most comics. There, there was this really big uh, Mexican publishing house called Novaro and they had the rights to DC mostly but also things like Gold Key and things like that and they kind of have the monopoly for decades and so I'm a child of the 70s and I used to get those Novaro reprints so I was reading you know DC comics in Spanish the translations now I can tell you were really really bad (laughs) so I was very much a Bronze Age type of guy right and my favorites were the Legion and the JLA and so when I finished primary school I got into secondary school which is like junior high sure it was you know kind of suggested to me that reading comics was not cool for a teenager so I probably ouch yeah completely ouch 
So I kind of dropped cold turkey and this was around, I would say, 1980, but I was getting comics, let's say, with a year of delay or something like that. So there are a couple of things that I missed completely and I know this one is going to hurt you. I didn't know who Firestorm was. Well, thanks for coming, Gus. Uh, have a nice day. <laughs> Folks, this is the end of the show. <laughs> and uh, I never got to see the new Teen Titans either. So I, I kind of missed that. And of course, I also missed the crisis and I missed all the relaunches and things like that. Oof, man. Okay. Heavy stuff. Yeah. So then around 88, I guess, I saw a newspaper article and they were talking about the rebirth of DC in terms of Dark Knight and Watchmen and whatnot. And they also mentioned the crisis and, you know, what they were doing with the relaunches of Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman and, and all that. And I, I was very intrigued. I was already in college. So it was like, well, I'm back to cool now. And... <laughs> And I used to go by this newsstand and they had, you know, all the American new releases. And I went in and I picked up a couple of things. And one of the things that I picked was JLI 11. And and actually, I picked that up for the cover because, again, I didn't know that the Justice League was called Justice League, right? Because the translation that we have here was Campeones de la Justicia, which was like Justice Champions or something like that. Oh, okay. So I kind of have to make the adjustment. And I look at the cover, you know, and it's the, the one that is the construct kind. Oh, right, right. The giant fist. It's got all the leaguers in her hands. Right, right. Yeah, it's a good cover. It's very powerful. But I didn't actually get who the characters were. So, for example, I, I didn't know who Mr. Miracle was. And I assume it was Red Tornado. <laughs> I can see that. Yeah, yeah, that makes Absolutely. sense. Absolutely. And it wasn't until I read Black Canary was Black Canary. I said, oh, so that's because, you know, she was in the Jasser side. Costume, <laughs> I, I never actually had seen ever before. Okay. But the thing is, you know that issue. You know, it's pure Maguire and... It's oh, yeah. So good. And it was shocking, but in a good way. Okay, so this has nothing to do with what I've seen before, right? And, and then I read some other titles, and they were, you know, more like maybe the themes were more adult and the drawing styles were more contemporary, but they would still something that was published in the 70s. JLI, it was not something that could have been published in the 70s. It was brand new, and it really felt very different. So I oh, went yeah. back, and I tried to get, you know, they have some back issues, and I got all the way back up to number eight. Ah, moving day. So good. And reading that, you know, it was like, okay, so these are not the comics that you're used to and this was much better and I was in, like, completely in. But then I was able to pick up until 14 and then over here we have economic issues all the time so I guess that they cancel the imports or something like that. So I I couldn't actually go back in to read regularly until JLI 25 but that is also JLE number one. So I was there at the very beginning of JLE. And I actually, when, when I contacted you, it was because number nine for JLE is a very big issue for me. I, I really have, you know, an attachment to this one. So I'm not going to say I like JLE better than JLI because, you know, my wire and the beginning and whatnot. But I have very strong affection for this one, let's say. Well, that's fantastic. I it was Similar to you, I, I came in later for me. And I've told this story on the show before. So sorry, folks, deal with it. But Justice League Europe was the first one I was buying on an ongoing basis. So I actually connected to Just League Europe before I connected to Just League America. So I completely understand. There's a lot to love about these old JLE issues. And just sometimes the Bart Sears artwork or the covers or whatever just bring up so many feelings from those early 90s era for me. And I just absolutely love it. And you know, one more thing is that I didn't actually get to read the first seven Justice League issues until the Trey Paperback was released. And that was, you know, later in 1990. And that is very relevant for this issue, for something that is happening in the meanwhile part 
parts of this issue. So good thing that I got to read those. Otherwise, I would be, you know, with question marks all over my face. That's a real good point. Because for me, those parts you're referencing, we'll get to, were question marks for me. I had no idea what was going on there because I hadn't read those issues. And like you, I couldn't find those early Justice League issues. When I finally went hunting for them uh, a year or two later, I ended up getting the first trade paperback as well. I still got it on my shelf. And man, that's that's back when DC first started their trade paperback program. And that is a super cheapo trade, man. The pages are like not high quality paper. It's newsprint. I mean, that's when they were still trying to figure out how to print trade paperbacks. Yeah. And there were like three releases. One was these. The other one was, you know, the Judas Contract. And then there was the Great Darkness Saga. And as I told you, you know, I'm a big Legion fan. So I'm very grateful for those TPVs that actually filled what I, I had been missing all those years that I wasn't reading comics. So well done, DC. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you got caught up and got into it. So, And I'm thrilled to have you here, man. Yeah, I'm excited. And again, you know, this is your, not your regular JLE issue either. Good that we're talking about it. Yeah, let, let, you know what? Let's get into it because we've got a lot to say on that. So folks, this is Justice League Europe number 12 from DC Comics, cover dated March 1990. It was on the shelves February 6th, 1990. Cover price was $1, four shiny quarters. Cover is by Bart Sears. Now, that's pencils and inks. You want to describe the cover for us, Gus? Yeah, sure. So, this is one of those, you know, no backgrounds covers that at the time, and again, you know, this is early 1990, and you didn't do that, right? And I, it looks like only, you know, the Andrew Helfer office was approving those because we've seen several that Maguire did, and, and you always mention them here. And so, not only there is no background, it's a white background, and it's very powerful. It's metamorpho on the foreground. He's holding his head in sorrow. He has a child's rattle in his hand. And you can see in the background that there is a baby carriage and it's glowing. And we who read comics can understand that it's kind of radioactive green. Mm-hmm. And there's the copy that says like father, like song. With a question mark, which With is which is a big, yep. yeah, which is like a big part of that. Yeah, you know, I hadn't even, this is so embarrassing. Like you mentioned all the, the no background. I didn't even notice it this time, which is stupid because it's an all white. It's so obvious, but I was so wrapped up in the image, in the power, and how the blank background just accentuates the power of the image. I didn't even think about that. It was like all those Kevin McGuire covers without a background. So good catch. Yeah, and probably you're going to hear me say this many, many times, but you know, Sears, man, the, he can draw, right? And and there are a couple oh, yeah. of characters that, you know, you always mention what he does, you know, with Captain Atom and the shiny mm-hmm. kind of thing, but he's made a and he's Dimitri. No one before and no one after comes even close to what he does with those two characters, right? For me, those are like, give me a reference and it should be Sears. It's as simple as that. So having here, uh, you know, this metamorpho picture, it's good, man. It's really good. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because like metamorpho is a great example of like, I love the Ramona, or obviously the Ramona Fraden version of metamorpho. I mean, you have to, it's just brilliant. I love the Jim Aparo version of metamorpho. But you're right. When I think of like my default setting, when I think of metamorpho it's by bart sears you're absolutely right i hadn't even realized that till you said it so yeah i, I absolutely adore the way he draws metamorpho uh, he just looks like such a bruiser you know i can't remember the guy's name i'm embarrassed to say but the guy who played drax in guardians of the galaxy yeah. I mean, he's almost built like uh that guy uh, batista yeah that's it yeah 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 and you know again as you say this guy is a bruiser but there's also something about the face so the thing that i, I believe you know most people and and again you know ramona she's great she's always been very cartoonish right so that's what she does and then some people after that they said oh you know we have to be faithful to the cartoonish kind of thing and and actually it's no you know you have to give your own interpretation and Aparo did that of course but Mm -hmm. there is something about the way that Sears draws his 
face. You know, it's all about the eyebrows. You know, it's yes, like, it is. <laughs> it's the brow and the eyebrows, and, and it's amazing. And you know, it's those thick eyebrows. That for me is, you know, the Canon metamorpho face. You know, don't give me anything else. It's like this is the one. Hey Rex, uh, Eugene Levy called wants his eyebrows back. So yeah, without a doubt. <laughs> so so getting into the cover specifically, a couple things I love about this is the baby carriage. It's a, it's very much an antique style baby carriage. You know, it's saying that is not what baby carriages look like in 1990 if you were going to the store and buying them. This is very much an antique sort of look, which sort of adds to that feeling. You you, you combine the, the glowing, the, the baby rattle, Rex's saddened expression. I mean, it's a really, really a very sad and almost a, a little bit eerie cover, I, again, just in the old classic sort of way. And it got me thinking, like, I couldn't put my finger on it. But to me, I, I felt like this was an homage. I'm like, all right, I feel like I'd seen this image somewhere in the like the layout, not, not, not Rex, but just the layout of it. And I couldn't put my finger on it. So I reached out to the interwebs and I put out a nerd call alert on Twitter. And I got some suggestions. I don't know that we've really nailed it, but there's definitely some places where there, there's some echoes of this type of cover. Damien Whiter suggested uh, Uncanny X-Men 138 is that famous cover where Cyclops yeah. is walking away from the X-Men and he's got like a satchel over there and it says, you know, exit Cyclops. And there's definitely sort of a reminiscent style of the hero on the right-hand side of the page for the reader and the, something in the, important in the background that they're walking away from and, mm-hmm. and the forlorn look. So there's definitely some similarities there. Sean Cleefield suggested Superman 296, also another very similar cover. Uh, it says, who took the super out of Superman, where it shows Clark Kent, again, sort of, sort of similar, looking very forlorn on the right-hand side of the page, walking towards the camera, and Superman in the background as he's walking away from him. Tim Price suggested perhaps this is a bit of a reverse of Spider-Man number 50, I mean, Spider-Man No More, where he's walking away from the trash can, where he's throwing the Spider-Man costume in the trash can. Jamie Coville suggested Flash 184. That's the famous cover where uh, it's got Barry uh, as Flash. He's got his head in his hand, and there's this giant dialogue on there. It says, you're about to read the most tragic day in the life of the Flash. And then Mike Dynas and Rick G. both suggested uh, the baby carriage. Not not necessarily the, the layout, but the baby carriage itself, the antique look, reminded them a lot of the baby carriage from the movie posters for Rosemary's Baby, which also was in my head. When, when I first started looking at this cover, that's exactly what I Googled, was Rosemary Baby. I felt like, oh, maybe this is a, a tribute to that. So, well, the baby carriage might be, the rest of it doesn't seem to be. Did you feel anything in this, or is it just me? So, I was, you know, following the thread, what everybody was suggesting there, and I kind of see everything. I, actually, I, I believe that Superman 296, you know, kind of gets it. And, and again, you know, the no background things, the, the whole white background took me to, you know, JLA 136. It has nothing to do with this. It's Batman okay. hitting the Joker on the, on the cover. But, you know, it's the style of cover. And then, of course, the Cyclops cover that you mentioned, there are so many homages to that one. And and one of yeah. them is actually Liefeld. And, you know, it has the white background as well. So you get that feeling. But for me, it feels very new as well. And, and again, this is what it has in common with those covers that were mentioned. You don't expect superheroes to be, you know, like in this type of sorrow. And especially in this case, you know, if you read the previous issue, you cannot get what is happening. But let's say that you're a brand new reader and you see this cover. You want to know, okay, what happened to Metamorph? So th- there is a mention of a song and you see the baby carriage, but it's like, okay, what is happening here? And the carriage, absolutely. And you know what you were saying before that carriages in 1990 didn't look like that. And you know, I have an interesting story about that. Uh-oh, okay. I was studying marketing at the time and we have to present uh, a product project. And one of the things mm-hmm. that, you know, my teammates 
teammates and myself were trying to do was like, okay, you know, let's improve on the baby carriage. So we were trying to do something very high tech and, you know, like egg shaped and, and whatnot. Kind of what the, you know, the devices in the actual issue look like, you know, those that Magnus came up with. Yeah. And it was incredibly expensive. It was like, you know, there's a reason why carriages look the way they do, because otherwise you have to pay, you know, a fortune to make them, you know, more resistant and, and whatnot. But we have to look at many, you know, carriages over the days and Rosemary's Babies came up every single time, you know, you there was oh, wow. no Google, but if, if you were doing research, and we are talking 30 years ago, you have to go to the library and whatnot. One of the references that kept coming up was Rosemary's Baby. So, absolutely. Yep. I, I, and now that you mention it, I cannot unsee it. You know, it's like, ooh, whoa. It also kind of brings me back to the JLA Exorcist cover. Oh, yeah, yeah. You are going back to a very specific reference that if you are a movie buff or you're into pop culture, you're going to get. So, I think what we have to say here, ultimately then, is we, we're not able able to put our finger on this being an exact homage and certainly there's elements and everything so at the end of the day i think what we just have to say is this cover itself is so darn iconic that it's emblazoned in our memory and uh, it's impossible to forget so that's what i'm gonna go with yeah absolutely and i agree and again if you ask me there are far more iconic issues of jle but i don't know if there are more iconic covers than this one and if you think about it kind of the prequel to this story which is jle 5 it also has a very iconic cover right and again there is no background and it's a powerful image and you have to read the issue to really get what is happening there yeah the, the rec stories are always fantastic in just like europe and it's nice because you know one of the things i with just like europe was a little tricky is you've got flash uh animal man at least till this issue captain adam and, and those characters all have their own monthly books so you really couldn't explore them all that much but once you get to the characters like metamorpho or power girl or dimitri you know you you have a chance to really delve in and, and learn more about the character and have development. And that's part of the reason those characters are, uh, and Elongated Man, I forgot to mention him, that are, are so beloved about the series is those characters got the development that were necessary. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we saw that happen with Wonder Woman and now on this issue we see with Buddy, right? And especially at the time in DC where continuity was so strong and what happened on individual titles was very, very important. So you could not pretend that was not happening, right? This was not Bronze Age. Absolutely. All right, we'll tell you what, let's get inside the issue folks plot is by keith giffen script is by bill mester lobes sadly this is the last issue by bill mester lobes that's very disappointing pencils and inks by bart sears which is not exactly something normal we saw that last month if i recall but it's not normal for bart to ink himself so we'll talk about that letter by bob lapan colors gene d'angelo assistant editor kevin dooley and even though he's not listed we all know that the editor was andy helfer the issue itself is called bringing up baby you want to start us off max sure so this plush page continues the action from the ending of the previous issue with the metal man confronting metamorpho while guy lies bloody and unconscious on the floor rex tries to convince them that they don't know the full story but given the casual evidence that they see there they move to confront and contain metamorpho while sapphire seeing what is coming tries to revive buddy who is unconscious on the floor as well rex is unstoppable and ingenious in the use of his powers against some people or andros who have him very evenly matched buddy finally comes to his senses but he is in no mood to join the fight 
Meanwhile, at the Russian facility where they are being held captive, and just on their way to regain their power, Silver Sorceress and Blue Jay discuss what to do next. The Sorceress wants to open a portal back to the world, but Jay wants to remain where they are and ask for help. She understands, but decides to go anyway, opening the portal, which doesn't go unnoticed by the guards outside, which run to the door, which blows out, and Jay escapes, not sure where he is going. Back at the stack facility, Metamorph and the Metal Men All Out continues, and Sapphire once again begs Paddy and Dimitri to intervene. Fortunately, Dimitri broke the gauntlets of his armor in case of emergency, and just then, Java rushes in, and once he remembers Buddy and Dimitri from way back in issue 5, barges in against them. So Dimitri and Buddy continue to battle Java, but unfortunately this building is completely devoid of any animal life, so Buddy can't access any of his powers. And the battle rages on between Metamorpho and the Metal Men, disrupting the room's mechanics. Now, the robot arms that are designed to care for Metamorpho and Sapphire's child accidentally end up endangering the baby by knocking over the crib. The baby goes flying across the room, but is heroically caught by Java. Unfortunately, the baby's uncontrollable element powers reduce Java's arm to dripping sludge. It's seriously gross, people. Uh, Sapphire and Metamorpho then take the baby and they take turns cradling the child, and it's revealed as the parents are both immune to the baby's transformative element powers. Now, Simon Stagg arrives, calling both the baby and Metamorpho freaks. Now, sickened by Stagg's manipulation and heartlessness, Metamorpho thrusts the baby into Simon Stagg's arms. Everyone is surprised to discover that Simon Stagg is also immune to the baby's transformative element abilities. Even more surprising is Stagg's change of heart. With tears in his eyes, Simon Stagg finally accepts the baby as his grandson. Stagg promises his grandson will be cared for and no longer treated as a slave to create the miracle fuel. Now, on the flight back to Europe, Dimitri and Buddy both compliment Metamorpho for his clever strategy with Simon Stagg and the baby. Metamorpho admits there was no clever strategy. He was just hoping the baby would kill Stagg. Now, back in uh, the New York Embassy, Guy Gardner plays a prank on Oberon and us, the readers. After the beating he took from Metamorpho, Guy pretends he's reverted to the sensitive personality he had in the earlier JLI issues. But no worries, Guy is still a massive jerk. The issue ends with Animal Man taking a leave of absence from the League. He's got to come to grips with the loss of his family that occurred over in his own monthly series. And as Buddy leaves, Catherine Colbert leads Dimitri to the other room to meet some new VIPs who have just arrived from Russia. Dimitri is overjoyed to find his wife and children are waiting for him. Then the next issue box says, next, you read JLA number 37, see? Then you buy JLA number 13, right? It's a kind of sort of crossover, but it's a simple one. Just two parts for a change so you don't have to spend your life savings to figure out what's going on. Now, don't you just love us? <laughs> yes, yeah, so we do get a bit of a crossover next month and it's a bit of a funny one so all right gus why don't we dive into the issue here what'd you think man so one thing that came up when you were reviewing issue issue 11 you know the previous one and now mm -hmm. this one is that this is not funny you know it's it's actually there there is very little funny in this issue it's a fun issue but it's not funny you know no wahahas and it's very interesting right so it's not either a straightforward superhero comic either because you do have the misunderstanding standing and the fight between heroes you know that that is very marvel oh yeah i was going to say marvel at the time but it's actually marvel at all times uh, <laughs> but you know it's it's no longer funny you know it's very action oriented and you know i'm really glad that crs draw it because he really gets that and it was mentioned in the comments section for for the previous issue that you have to go read the previews the brave and the ball interaction between the metal man and a metamorpho to see you know that the 
there is kind of a riff there, but it doesn't even come close, right? What Sears does here is like, man, and I wonder how many of these power usage things came from him and how many were Giffen's. Right. Let's do this or not. And again, you know, Sears is one of those artists that probably took the most liberties with the backgrounds. Okay, so we know it's not scripted because the script is actually done after the art, but I wonder how much of that was actually in Giffen's original breakdown for. But it's fun, it's original, it's great actually. I do wonder the same thing because there's a lot of really creative use of the powers, like you said. We'll touch on some of that in a little bit. And we know Giffen liked to plot by drawing little mini comics, so maybe he did put some of that in there. But yeah, I mean, it just, Sears, I mean, Sears was born to draw the Metal Man. They just look stunning under his pencil, and I love the way he distinguishes between all of them. They look fantastic. Uh, going back to your previous point about it being funny, you're right. There there are not a lot of gut-busting moments. I, I like the way you described it. It's fun, but not funny. Yeah, that's absolutely right. There are certainly situations in here that are a bit humorous, but there's not the the typical kind of laugh-out-loud gag. Now, that, that does seem to be a bit of the Bill Mesterlobe style, where the script is strong, but it's not as blah-ha-ha. And they even say it right here in, in the introduction where they talk about the, the credits. It says, a slice of sentimentality, courtesy <laughs> of. So yeah, so they're, they're acknowledging up front that this one's not going to be, you know, bust-a-gut laughing. And, and that also sort of fits with their original plan, because Justice League Europe, when they launched, that was their intention to have more of a, an adventurous, traditional Justice League comic than, because, you know, Justice League America was quickly shifting towards full-on sitcom, which is fine and great, but they, they acknowledge that, and so to, to satisfy the classic fans, when they launched Justice League Europe, they did promise it would be a lot more traditional Justice League. Now, we haven't, other than a couple issues here and there, it hasn't really been traditional Justice League. I mean, this issue itself is wonderful and not hilarious, but it's still not traditional Justice League. There is no real bad guy in this story, other than Simon Stagg. And even him, he's not out to conquer the world or anything, he's just a corporate douche. It's a guy that we don't like. It doesn't make him a villain, right? It's like, right. well, he's an a-hole if you want to say it, right? But, you know, he's doing it. Well, again, he's Mr. Capitalism, as Guy said in the previous issue, so. But, you know, one thing is that by this time, I don't know what a traditional Justice League story was either, right? So we are thinking about Silver, Bronze Ages, but by now, you know, there were like three years of Justice League stories, and people were expecting this, and and it's funny, you know, I was reading some of the letter columns that were, you know, commenting on this issue, mm-hmm. and people were really trying to force the funny, right? Like, ah, ha, 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 it was so funny, you know, what the Metal Man and Metamorpho were doing, and it's not funny, it's not funny at all, right? It's, stop trying to make it funny because it's not happening right it's something completely different and it was like okay you know justice league giffen it has to be funny well no and actually jla is about to get not funny also there is a run there coming up yeah yeah it's like you know don't get too comfortable because this may change any minute yeah and it's sort of interesting because you know uh, sometimes there's an ebb and flow here like for example the the issue that we covered right before this the justice league america issue is all out funny so having this this issue on the shelves the same month which was not funny at all makes a nice balance as well sort of counterbalances the two and and i think you know i mentioned the traditional justice league story now that i think about it i think only the first few issues of justice league europe were in the traditional sort of silver age justice league style where the team breaks into smaller groups and they go out and solve a problem after that you know giffen found his own groove this is the style of justice league that he comes up with and i gotta tell you even though this isn't funny i love the story here because it really touches you you get into it emotionally absolutely and, and then there are all the other bits right that we are going to go one by one but everything that has to do with body right on page two sapphire is saying you know please come back i need someone to help you know she knows what is about to happen and then body does come to his senses but 
then again, he's in no shape to fight, right? And it's very powerful. Even if you're not reading Animal Man, but you read the previous issue, you know what happened to his families. You know, it's gut-punching. And then everything that happens in the end with Dimitri. And and if you think about it, what is the, the bigger theme here on this issue and the previous one is fatherhood, right? It's about, yeah. you know, Rex being a father, Buddy losing his family, and Dimitri regaining his. So it's very strong, you know. Sometimes we don't think that this, you know, is like Giffen made those funny little comics and then gave them to other people to draw and then script. And actually, he put a lot of thought into this. It is not casual. It's so good. So, so good. I'm embarrassed to say I did not put it together that all three of those storylines, Dimitri, Buddy, and Rex, are all about fatherhood. I did not see that until you brought it up. So uh, it's almost like you're used to analyzing people's emotional issues or something. I, I don't know. You don't say. <laughs> And, you know, going back to the Sears thing and why the previous issue and this one are inked by himself. And I'm wondering if he didn't actually ask to do it himself because maybe he loved those action scenes so much that he wanted to do his own inks. No idea. You know, this is something that just came to my mind, but it's like, you know, the attention to detail because, you know, when someone else inks him, it can be very good. But this is top of the line, right? You know, I'm actually looking forward to receiving, you know, the omnibus that has the high quality reprint of this because I really want to say that I have the original issue here. You know, the ink is a mess because the paper was really, really bad. But I'm sure that this pops out. I've read it digitally because I've got it digitally through Comixology, and I think it, it may. I think it's on DC Universe as well. Uh, it really is beautiful digitally. It's gorgeous, and, go, and I, as I always recommend, go go panel by panel mode, folks. You can really study all the detail. It's breathtaking. Now, a couple of things I wanted to talk about specifically with Bart Sears inking because um, a couple of thoughts. First off, is you know a couple of issues ago, Art Nichols did the pencils, and Bart Sears did the inking. So I think at this point, Bart's probably got some kind of interest in inking because this is like the third issue he's inked of, of the series, whether he was the pencil or not. So that's kind of interesting. But talking about uh, the Metal Men, you know, I mentioned they, they look absolutely stunning, right? But here's a weird thing I noticed. All of the Metal Men have rivets, you know, little bolts all over their body, right? Yeah. Except for Platinum, which I thought was kind of weird. And I, I don't understand why. I went back and looked at the classic series. Sure enough, she had rivets. She had bolts all over her. So it must have been some sort of stylistic choice by Bart Sears. Now, he does draw her exceptionally well endowed because Bart Sears does not know how to draw a, uh, a woman who's not sexy. Uh, we yep. see that throughout the issue. I mean, there's there's platinum, there's sapphire, silver sorcerers, all of them are just, wow, uh, pinup model style pictures. But I think it was odd that there was no rivets on her. I, th- I don't know if you noticed that or if I'm just looking too deeply into this thing. No, I didn't. And, you know, now that you mention it, also what I realize is that the rivets on all the characters are actually optional because they are pretty much shapeshifters. So yeah. they don't need to be there. And it would make perfect sense with Tina's personality that she would change her outfit and shush it up a little bit and things like that I was like no rivets you know these are so 70s so I'm not going back to that <laughs> it could be it could be yeah very much so and you know what you said again if you look at the splash page you can see how much CR loves these characters right and and you know Iron have you seen the attitude on that guy you know it's like don't mess with Iron it's, <laughs> it's so so good you know and I love it so another one who I bet love these characters is Bill Manson's loves right because he gets each one of the characters' personalities down pat. And it could be very easy to overlook, right? Since this is, you know, like one 
big long fight scene you may not go into that but every time you know Led opens his mouth he's going full on Ben Grimm and, and it's a lot of fun and that's how the character sounds it's, it's very much they're all in character all the time you can pick up any older Metal Men comic and, and this is how they're supposed to sound it's just amazing well it's interesting you mentioned that because on the splash page they really went to extra lengths to make sure every single character got to say something so and it's also it's a bit of a recap as well but every character gets to set something to set the tone and their personality as you mentioned which is great although I have to point out again Platinum she got ignored she doesn't get anything to say on the splash page again I don't know what's going on with that but uh, eventually she gets to talk and she talks about how Rex is a cutie which is uh, not very forward thinking but it matches the personality that was established for her in this in the Silver Age certainly because she was so ahead of her heels for uh, Doc Magnus all the time mm-hmm. and Iron specifically about Iron I noticed one thing in here that he really uh, he's kind of like the big words guy you know he really talks like the scientific brain of the group now I don't necessarily remember that attribute in him as a character from Metal Man maybe I'm forgetting but either way it, maybe Master Lopes was trying to establish that or maybe Giffen was if the, if so I think that fits because that's one thing the Metal Man really didn't have which was a scientific brain besides Doc Magnus well you know I don't want to get ahead of myself but it's something that will come up in the character oh. spotlight Perfect. Almost like uh, you were prepared for that. Well done, sir. So let's talk for a little bit. You know, we remember this issue because everything that happens, you know, Metamorpho, the fatherhood storylines and whatnot. But a large chunk of the issue is dedicated to Silver Sorcerers and Blue Jay, right? So we yeah. know that it's setting up a future story. But actually, you know, it's longer than than I remember. And also, again, the tongue is very grim, right? It's very dark. Mm-hmm. It's kind of depressing. We have kind of a preview of what Silver Sorcerers sees when she opens the portal and he's like man this is turning for the worse and, and you can really feel it this is not really going well right it's four pages out of a 22 page comic I mean that's a lot of real estate and also reading this at the time for, uh, first of all again I didn't know who these characters were at the time but then eventually when I found out who they were it made a lot more sense but now reading this in hindsight after knowing about the extremist storyline that's coming up there is a line in here talking about the world that they've left everything is gone they destroyed it all and if you're reading it at this point and knowing what you know about the, these characters, the champions of Angor, you're thinking, okay, they, meaning the people that live in that world because they bombed it with the nuclear weapons. Now, in hindsight, now that we know about the extremists, you're reading this going, oh, they destroyed it all. Oh, Giffen's, Giffen's hinting at that. We see where this is going. Yep. Spoilers. Absolutely. Sorry, guys. No, yeah, but it makes sense. Right? And again, you know, goes to show what Giffen's craft is. The, the man was plotting ahead. You know, it's like, hats off. He's doing the homework. And this is golden age for Giffen. He's doing everything here. You know, he's doing Acronome Legion. He's about to launch five years later. He has these issues. Couple of, or yeah, this same year is the Lovo miniseries. It's like he could do no wrong. Yeah. Top of his game. Yeah. Oh yeah. Without a doubt. And, and again, I don't know how much of this was plotted by Giffen and how much is, you know, CRs giving free reign. But many of the things that I find actually funny about this issue have to do with the visuals not so much with the script Mm -hmm. you know all all the you know squishy things that you know metamorpho and the metal men are doing to themselves sometimes you know they look funny you know even though what is happening if they were actual human beings it would be terrible when you look at that i'm thinking about like page 13 the last panel of the top row you have the giant fist getting gold which is you know splattering all over it's a lot (laughs) of fun but actually you know my my favorite visual gag has to be Jav 
have as tartan trousers when he barges in. You know, it's <laughs> like you have this beast, right? And he has, you know, a sensible cardigan, a tie, and tartan trousers. And he's like, you know, who came up with this? You know, it's it's so good, <laughs> so so good. Actually, I, I don't know if that is not my favorite moment in the whole issue. I, I love that bit, but it ties in from last issue where, and I feel kind of bad where you know Metamorpho goes in and basically barges in on Java and Sapphire's home life. Now, whether those that couple should be together or not, that's a whole separate issue. But they're just, at that point, Java and Sapphire are just re- relaxing at home. And so, yeah, he is just wearing his cozy around the house kind of clothes. And I feel bad for the guy. And you're right, he shows up here in it, which is absolutely hilarious. My, my favorite move, it, which I thought was really great, was um, Metamorpho has, has tricked Gold into going really thin and has spooled him up on his arm. So one arm is like a whole, almost like a fly fishing rod or something full with spun gold. And the other one, uh, Iron's about to hit him with this giant sledgehammer. And right as he's swinging at Metamorpho, Platinum swoops in and entangles Metamorpho's leg. So Metamorpho suddenly is falling forward into Iron's giant sledgehammer, which then knocks him across the room. And I just thought that was awesome teamwork. I think the, the panel layout, and this is, by the way, I should point out, it's on page uh, three. I, I think the, the panel design and the layout and just telling the story visually, because you w- you don't need the words to understand what's happening there, is just really, really well done. I really thought that was great. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of layouts, you know, there, there are a couple of things here. You have a couple, for example, you know, page 17 is a nine panel grid, but it's not the regular nine panel grid because they, they are not all even, right? So you have like, I noticed that, yeah. Yeah. So I, I guess that, you know, probably the original was a regular given nine panel grid. And this is where CR says, well, you know, I'm going to actually going to make the last row is going to be taller. And it really works, right? Because, you know, you pay a different kind of attention to the close up of, of stack there. Well done. And yeah. speaking of CRs, you know, the, you know, you are the irredeemable. I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce that, but you have no redemption. Basically, that's what <laughs> irredeemable. It's part of my name. I got you. <laughs> when you're talking about women, and sometimes you know, I fall into the trap of doing that with men. And you know, on page uh, page twelve, you know that Dimitri, you know, barging in scene. You know, for me, it's all kinds of hot. And actually, you know, <laughs> the way that Sears draws Dimitri's beard, that those were my beard goals at the time right and i could <laughs> for the love of god i could not you know grow a beard that nice and thick back at the time of course now i'm in my 50s and i've been able to so i'm the very proud owner of a beard if you ask the secret origin you know i saw it dimitri do it first and those were my beer goals <laughs> I, I love that, sir. See, I, I have a beard as well, but mine's all like a little tiny because I can't grow a big, bushy, you know, manly beard. Like I, I see your profile picture here and I, I have beard jealousy. I really do. <laughs> and I love that Dimitri was your beard goal. That's fantastic. And you're right. Dimitri looks awesome when he comes flying in with that kick. And uh, I mean, he is a hero with or without his armor. He is fantastic. Absolutely. And, and here's the other thing that I noticed, you know, when, when I look at that panel and then looking at the other panels as well, that one thing that Sears does great is that when he draws these super people in you know everyday clothes they still look super and it's not something that you see very often right and and i understand that the superman clark kent type of thing is that he's you know he has a different you know body position and whatnot so that he doesn't look that that great but they could be two different people and sometimes it happens you know that you see the secret identity i don't know you see wally west out of costume and he doesn't look that super when sears draws them they are you know it's like well you know it's power girl you know this is how 
how clothes would, you know, fall on that body. And same with Dimitri, which, you know, I picture as being a huge guy. He must be, I don't know, 6'5 or something like that. You know, I'm built like a refrigerator. So it makes <laughs> sense that clothes would look that way on his body. To me, Dimitri will always be like, you know, if I were doing fan casting, uh, would be Brian Blessed from the Flash Gordon movie from like 1980 yeah. or 79 or whatever that was, where, he's, where uh, Brian Blessed, he's got the beard and he's playing Hawkman. He's like, ah! You know, that's Dimitri to me. Just a couple of things that I wanted to mention that, again, you know, keeping up with the dark tone, there are a couple of things. And when we come to the guy sequence at the end, you know, guys singing feelings. And for me, you know, even though I understand why it's funny and I understand that, you know, the one punch on the previous issue actually brought this and we know what the one punch brought to Guy originally is like it felt kind of out of place and again you know once you realize okay this issue has themes Guy is not part of those themes you know so it's like go back to JLA we don't need you here (laughs) this page almost seems like it's connected to last issue more so because Guy was very much uh, the aggressive jerk guy last issue so it feels like it belongs to the previous issue I again like you said I understand why it's here but yeah it does sort of not quite fit if you're reading month to month it does sort of be like what oh oh yeah i forgot guy got beat up real bad yeah and that said i love the way crs draws guy because you know people tend to go for funny for guy and the thing is he doesn't see himself as funny even if he has the mo haircut or not he's a tough guy and and i like you know crs really gets the the tough out of guy and that is why also you know the joke works because you have this really tough guy singing feelings so even if you don't know that it would be a visual gag. It would be like having a, a wrestler singing, you know, a sweet 70s song or something like that. I, I get that. Again, I could have done without that page. And let me ask you, as a psychotherapist, you know, should we be cracking jokes about people with mental illnesses? Uh, no, we shouldn't. But then again, I don't know how much of a mental illness. So, so guy has mental problems. I don't know if it's an illness. And the origin of those is no, you know, hit in the head. It, those have to do with the fact that he was in a coma for a very long time right so Mm. we shouldn't make fun of that but then again you know everybody assumes that he's a normal guy otherwise he shouldn't be you know in an international superpower police force right so in that case if we have to take it at face value that he's a regular guy yeah we can make fun of him (laughs) all right i'll go for that it's a little scary that that guy that unbalanced has uh, one of the most powerful weapons in the universe on his finger though that's absolutely it's like guardians what are you thinking people come Mm -hmm. on so what i wanted to ask you Shaggy, are you watching The Mandalorian? I am. Let's not do any spoilers, though. No, no, but without going into that, you know that in the the second season, it's been revealed that the child, as it's called, you know, or Baby Yoda, as we like to call him, has been used for experimentation. And I couldn't help to think, you know, I was watching that, and then I was, you know, reading this issue, and then you have Rex's baby, your meta-baby, they never actually named him, being used. and, And I couldn't help to see the parallel, right? I don't know if you saw that, but it was like, you know, I... I watched the episode, read the issue, and it was like, hmm. That, you know, I hadn't thought about that. And, and for those of you at home who are worried, that's not really a spoiler at all. I mean, in, in season one, episode two, we saw them experimenting on the baby, the, the Imperial. So that's no, no spoilers there. Don't worry, folks. Yep. But uh, I hadn't thought about that. You're right. The connection between the babies. Hmm. 
little timely and interesting that we'd be covering this issue about the same time those stories are being told. Interesting. Yeah. And, and again, you know, it's things that we are seeing. Of course, there are 30 years, you know, between one content and the other, but well, worth mentioning. Well, we know John Favreau likes comic books. So, you know, he maybe he read this. Ah, there you have it. <laughs> so I just want to mention a couple of clever tactics I thought were great. Like, you know, Rex dissipates into gas, uh, which, which is a common move for him. But then Gold creates a fan dissipating the gas even further, which forces Rex to reconstitute. I thought, oh, that's really clever. I mean, the whole idea of this elemental matchup really works well. Because you've got, again, Rex with all his elements. They're made of elements. They all shape changers. It's a great idea. Gold transforms into like a revolver at one point, which actually maybe sort of like jump back as, you know, thinking, okay, here's a kid reading this and the heroes just turned into a gun is pointing point blank at the hero. That's a little scary. It's a great visual. Yes, it really is. And of course, again, it's it's Bart Sears drawing shiny metal. So that works, right? <laughs> so there's one thing that sort of left me scratching my head. On page five, Rex creates liquid nitrogen and sprays lead, trying to stop him from getting him. And I'm thinking, Rex's powers don't work that way. He doesn't. He can't spray someone with liquid, ni- liquid nitrogen. Now, I suppose he could turn himself into liquid nitrogen and splash it on lead, and maybe that's what we're supposed to interpret it's happening. But it, I, I don't see that in the artwork, though. I don't know. Am I being too nitpicky here? No, actually, you know, so we should see, you know, like Rex spreading himself all over lead, and I don't know if it's something that we want to see in a family-oriented comic. But anyway... <laughs> No, but you know, now that you mentioned that, and and again, you know, one of the fun things about both the Metal Man and Metamorpho is that they are very much Silver Age concepts. You have, you know, people, Julius Schwartz especially, you know, he was always trying to, you know, teach a lesson with these comics, right? So it was like, you learn something about chemistry and physics and whatnot. And many of the uses of the powers that we have here actually kind of harken back to that, to that feeling. And and actually the, the war of the elements. So that means that you have to know, you know, what the properties of those elements are and, and whatnot. So this one, as you mentioned, it doesn't work that way. We realize it because all the other uses actually make sense and this one doesn't. That's true. It, it does feel sort of educational. Like there should be a, a little note in there about what you know, flash fa- fun or was it called flash facts or whatever. Yeah, flash sort facts, of explaining yeah. all that. Yeah. So I, I didn't even put that together. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Now uh, moving forward further into the issue, we've talked a whole lot about the metal men. We've talked a whole lot about the fight. You notice we didn't talk much about the resolution. So I wonder if that says something about it. So you get to page fifteen, right, which is where Java's arms have now turned to goop, which is absolutely horrific. And I, I really feel bad for Java because he actually dove to save the child. I mean, he did something heroic and ended up you know, basically losing his arms to putty, which is totally gross. And then once you get past that page 15, it's interesting the metal men are just forgotten. They're literally not even shown in a single panel or mentioned again for the rest of the issue. I, I do feel like that maybe that's a, a failing of the script. There should have been maybe a one-off comment or something about it. There's only one comment and it's about Magnus and not the metal man, right? That he had some sort of contraption that would help Java so that yeah. they also kind of write Java out of that, right? He's like, oh yeah, well, he was melted, but Magnus is going to fix that. It's, it's the first time I've ever cared about Java <laughs> was that panel. Now, it's interesting, you know, when, when Simon Stagg finally accepts the baby as his grandson and he's holding him, there's a splash page, and that's page 18, and, and Simon's actually crying and stuff, and like, it's interesting that the panel itself, it, it's an important story point, absolutely, but I read it and I'm like, I don't know if that deserves a splash page, but then the more I thought about it, just the very fact of it 
being a splash page actually lends a lot more power to that moment. And as if to tell you, this is a key critical moment in the issue. And it's right. It is. So uh, I went back and forth on it. And by the end of it, I'm like, okay, yeah, it actually deserved to be the splash page moment. But it did leave me scratch my head for a moment because, you know, this is a superhero comic. You don't expect the splash page being, you know, a geriatric old man crying. Well, you know, I'm becoming my professional therapist self here for a moment. And this page, you know, is so important because in, you know, in character terms, it's what we call a breakthrough, right? So, Mm. and and we know because we've seen, you know, Stark's appearances after this, but actually he does a 180, at least on when it comes to his grandson and probably Rex. So it's very important. And if Stark would have continued appearing here, this would have been, well, this is when he changes, right? And then of, of course, other writers took the character and went in a different direction, but I, I think that this is actually a breakthrough. So again, you know, splash panel for this, I'm all for it. And and th- that is a greatly drawn baby as well, right? So again, Sears, well done, sir. That's a good point. I mean, even though it's you know, the, the sad multi-patchwork colors, you're right. Now that I just look at the line work, it looks like a baby. That's a hard thing to do. That's a good mm-hmm. point. Yep. All right. So last question for me here. All right. And this is a moral question. So Rex tried to kill Stag. I mean, he straight up tried to murder him by handing him the baby. So should we consider Rex's actions villainous? I mean, it's attempted murder. Should we feel differently about Rex as a hero at this point? I'll throw it to you first because I don't know that I have an answer. So if this was a court of law, yeah. So because it was intentional, right? It was no accident. You can argue, you know, that the whole Java thing was an accident. But here it was like, I saw how those powers work on Java. I want to do the same thing to Stag. And so I don't know if the billionaires is the right word, but there was a clear, you know, intention and that intention was bad and he probably should have been punished for that and he kind of got away and so we get to, you know, make a joke about it. But, you know, even though there are some things that may attenuate, I don't know if that is a word in English, but, you know, like soften, if there was a jury, they would say, well, you know, the man was in emotional distress, it was about his son, he felt that he was being held captive and tortured by this other man, so he attempted to do that, but yeah, there was intention of murder. Yeah, I, I think you summed it up best. I don't really have anything to add. I think you, you nailed it on the head. It, it, the behavioral, the response, and the, the moral shades of gray with that mm-hmm. one. So, oh, all right. Well, that was issued just like Europe number 12. I loved rereading it. I did not know what to expect. I didn't remember any of it other than the cover, really, going into it. So this was a lot of fun. How about for you? Yep, yep. I loved it as well. And and again, I love getting into the little details. So on one hand, there is the whole fight, which is, you know, impressive still. But then you have the fatherhood bits. And, and again, you know, Stark's story, it's also a fatherhood story, right? So and how it all ties together. Yeah, very, very nice. Very, very nice. And I'm really glad you, you brought that theme forward that it was should have been hitting me over the head the whole time. But I'm glad you pointed out the whole fatherhood theme throughout the issue because it's, it's right there and it makes a lot of sense. All right. Well, that's the issue. So now we're going to move on to a little segment I like to call... Character Spotlight. This is where the guest is asked to share a few thoughts on one of the character or characters, in this case, from the issue. Not really an origin recap, but more about where these characters were in the DC Universe before they interacted with the JLI, and what kind of impact the JLI may or may not have had on their careers. So, uh, would you please tell us about The Metal Men? Sure. So the Metal Men first appeared in Showcase 37. This was in 1962, and they were created by the writer Robert Kaniger and the penciler Ross Andrew. And they continued for a couple of 
more issues of uh, of showcase as the lead feature in showcase that was what was done at the time to to launch new characters and then they graduated to their own title that either monthly or bi-monthly ran until 1969 so for seven years the metal men were are actually the creation of dr will magnus and they are gold iron lead platinum mercury and ting and they are sentient robots with very definite character traits which are the product of a proprietary technology that magnus invented that is called responsometers so that as well as their power somewhat resemble the main characteristics of each one of the metals so iron is very strong and very noble and so on then we have platinum or as we like to call her tina Uh, she actually believes herself to be a human which leads to do some heavy flirting with her creative dr magnus something that the psychotherapist in me will try not to analyze in depth right now The characters were regularly featured as guest stars in many titles, especially in The Brave and the Vault, and then later in DC Comic Presents as well. And in The Brave and the Vault number 55, they were drawn by the great Ramona Freydon, which is very much like a possible preview of the issue that we have at hand, something that we already mentioned. After they came back in the 70s, they were promptly cancelled in the DC implosion, and Dr. Magnus actually was featured more than the Metal Men themselves, as usually one of the go-to lead scientists in the DC universe. Previous to this appearance, if I'm not wrong, the last we have seen of the Metal Men was in Action Comics. They were fighting their villain, Kimo, alongside Superman, and this was written and drawn by John Byrne. And then, what is interesting is what happened after this. So, a couple of years after this, they were resurrected and kind of retconned in a miniseries by the then very hot Dan Jurgens, which made, I would like to say, a mess of things. Mm-hmm. Mm. Basically, this miniseries said that the personality trays were not part of what the you know the responsometers had as programming but they were the actual personalities of people who work with magnus including his own brother mike and his fiance who then became tina amping up the soap opera content of this to what the then current melrose place was kind of doing you know in terms of (laughs) so gold was actually supposed to be the personality of of mike magnus and he was killed in this series series and so Will Magnus became a new metal man himself called Viridium. And again, I'm not giving a professional psychotherapist opinion on any of this. Uh, Needless to say, this didn't actually last. It was very quickly come back. And actually, uh, in the 52 miniseries, it was kind of, you know, positioned as, a, you know, something that was in Will Magnus' imagination and, and not something that actually happened. The characters had been used and retconned in several continuities, uh, Magnus especially having close ties to the Doom Patrol because there is a, a, a connection with Robot Man, so he's always mentioned there. And very interestingly, they are much better served by all the alternate versions of the characters such as in Elseworlds JLA the nail and another nail there's an interesting use of them there and of course they're used to great effect in the animated Batman the Brave and the Bold thank you so much for the recap that's absolutely wonderful and as you're reading it you know a few things occurred to me like you mentioned how Metal Men appeared so often in Brave and the Bold and things like that the comic as opposed to the cartoon but really I started realizing you know Bob Haney well Bob Haney did not create the Metal Men he really was connected to both Metamorpho and the Metal Men quite a bit because he wrote a lot of those Brave and the Bold 
folds that featured the metal men. And of course he, you know, was very deeply connected to Metamorpho. So I, I love me some Zany Haney. So uh, I love that both Bob Haney was connected to, to both those properties. It's very interesting what you say. And, and again, you know, he's not a part of the of the whole universe. And again, the Teen Titans, and there is a Haney, you know, connection there with the Titans as well. Those were the parts of the DC universe that I wasn't as familiar with until I got back and did some research. But yeah, there's a whole Haneyverse connection over there. So I want to pimp a couple of uh, different Metal Men eras for you if you're Metal Men fans. Because me, I adore the Metal Men. I absolutely love them. I don't know that we've ever had the perfect Metal Men story, or at least, well, I think we've had several good stories, but not necessarily the perfect run. I agree with you about the Dan Jorgens, Mike Carlin Metal Men miniseries, which really just was a made a mess <laughs> of the whole thing is the best way you put it. But uh, if you want some great Metal Men issues, folks, uh, besides the Just League Europe ones we just talked about, go check out in the, uh, the late 70s, Walt Simonson drew some of the issues of Metal Men that are unfreaking believable They are explosive. They're bombastic. They are gorgeous. I mean, first of all, it's Walt Simonson. I shouldn't have to say anything after that. I should just be done. But they are so adventurous and so gorgeous. We covered them on a, um, a special episode on Fire and Water. We talked about Marty Pascal books and I happened to talk about these Walt Simonson drawn ones. And they're an absolute joy. So I highly recommend you try those issues. Also, in 2007, 2008, there was a Metal Men miniseries. It's quirky. It's weird. Uh, you know that because it was based on story ideas by Graham Morrison. But uh, it's written and drawn by Duncan uh, Relu. I don't know how to say his last name. I always get it wrong. But he's got a really interesting style. And of course, as most Metal Men stories are, they, they revamp the origin. But it is striking and the art is gorgeous. And it's a fun, fun read. It's over on uh, DC Universe. You can read that one if you're a subscriber there. And then finally, and this one's closer to all of our hearts, folks, there was a run of eight-page backups of the Metal Men in the Doom Patrol book around 2009. So they, they ran for, I think, six issues maybe, and it was eight pages, and they were backups featuring the Metal Men done by, wait for it, Keith Giffen, J.M. DeMatteis, and Kevin McGuire. Oh, come on. I'm not kidding. I don't know if you guys have heard of those people before or not. But So go check out, again, if, if you have the DC Universe app, that, that's the quickest way to do it. You just go find the Doom Patrol series from around 2009 that, and you read the Doom Patrol issue and in the back half is that uh, Metal Men story and it is an absolute hoot. There's some great uh, reoccurring gags. I mean, the guys are just funny. They're really on point. It's a fantastic, fantastic Metal Men story. So, alright, just asking, do you have like a special place in your heart for the Metal Men or is it just like, yeah, they're pretty cool? You know, for me, they're pretty cool uh, and again, I wasn't introduced to them by this issue. I probably had read that, that action comics before that and I knew them from Crisis as well but you know no, not really I do remember being kind of upset by the Jurgens miniseries it was like what because you know it, it seemed very dark for characters that usually were treated in a more lighter kind of way you know even in this issue they are you know like being bodyguards for Magnus and Stag and whatnot. but they are still you know fun characters and suddenly they having you know the tragic personalities of this actual human being was like uh, I, I don't care about that but, you know and, and now I'm very intrigued about those backups because I never read them as for what you say it's a, a throwback to a more you know a simpler Metal Men era so I'm all for that yeah it's a lot of fun it's great and I, I think I want to say on behalf of everyone here on the podcast I could listen to you say Respondometer all day long it just <laughs> sounds gorgeous coming out of your mouth sir it's beautiful so I love that alright folks with this we are now going to get into the coveted Wahaha Award. 
This is where we nominate the funniest moment in the issue. Both myself and Gus will pick one moment, and only one will be awarded the coveted Bwahaha Award. Now, Gus, we both acknowledge that this issue is not gut-busting funny, so this is going to be tough. What is your nomination for the Bwahaha Award? This was very, very tough, and you know, I find most of page 12 funny for different reasons, you know, uh, everything from lead being the wheel to, you know, well, the, the gun thing and whatnot, but actually it's a very minor thing on the top panel. Uh, Metamorpho is grabbing Tina and she says, hey, watch your elements, pal. And I thought that, <laughs> that, that was actually very cute and very funny. Again, it's one of those things that come afterwards in the scripting, but I love that. And, and again, I don't know if it's, you know, go how wahaha, but but it's funny and it's probably the one that stuck with me the longest. That is funny. I like that one quite a bit. Uh, my nomination is, I don't know, again, not necessarily wahaha. Mine's over on page two and Metamorpho is basically telling the metal man to beat it. He's saying, get out of here. You don't know the whole situation. And then Iron grabs him and Metamorpho says, oh boy, now you guys are in it deep, assaulting a member of an international peacekeeping group. And Gold says, really? Then kindly explain why Mr. Gardner's lying unconscious on the floor, which to me, <laughs> kind of cracked me up because that was like a whole plot point we sort of forgot. It was like, oh yeah, he did just beat the crap out of Guy Gardner. So there is a legitimate reason for that. Now, as I say it out loud, it becomes even less funny. It's more interesting than funny. So I I think before we even get into debate, I'm going to have to give it to you. I think yours is more of a, as you said, guffaw kind of ha-ha-ha moment. So I, I'm willing to uh, defer to your pick, sir. I really appreciate that. You know what this is? And there is a quote that I always attribute to Blue Beetle, of course, it's probably not his, but it's like when he says in one of the early issues, they ask him why he always has to make jokes. And he says, you know, it's to alleviate the tension with a little bit of humor. And this is what Tina is doing, right? It's very tense. It's an, in an action movie, it would be the joke that you crack so that you don't have to clench your jaw the whole time, right? So, hey, God, watch your elements. That's perfect. So, congratulations, Tina. You have won the coveted Bwahaha Award. It is as tangible as the laughter we give you. It's a platinum award. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. All right. Now, Gus, I need to ask a favor. As a professional psychotherapist, would you mind chatting with Guy Gardner, please, about how wrong it is to tease people about your own mental condition? I just really feel like that's inappropriate. Uh, yeah, sure. This could take a while. And I'm not sure if maybe I do have to do, you know, a little interconsult with, with the shrink of some other kind, but I'll take care of that. Perfect. And any billing you need to send, send it straight to the embassy at courtesy of Maxwell Lord, please. Now, don't worry, Gus. We will bring you back at the end of the show. And folks, while Gus is taking care of that for us, I'm going to read your listener feedback in a segment called Monitor Duty. All right, folks, before we get to your feedback, just a little bit of news. Justice League International Omnibus Volume 2 is out, and it's in people's hands. You might want to pick yourself up a copy. This is one of the only places you can get a lot of the reprinted issues. Several of them are not available digitally, at least at the time of this recording, so it is your best bet to get some of those hard-to-find reprints. Now, I did hear from Jake Muir, who's already got his copy, and he noted some of the coloring mistakes from the original issues have not been fixed yet. Uh, A little disappointing. I I know we've seen a lot of coloring mistakes get fixed in reprints over the years, but I guess not all of them got caught for the omnibus. 
All right, up next, Wonder Woman 1984 should be out any day now at the time of this release. And remember, Maxwell Lord plays a major role in the film. I don't think it's a role that we're all going to be terribly excited about because he's not playing a good guy and it's not full of blah-ha-has. But hey, you know what? The movie looks to be absolutely phenomenal. So hey, we'll take what we can get. All right, next, the DC Legends mobile game uh, recently added a new character to the roster, the Black Hand. And one of his gear updates is, wait for it, an adult cinema ticket. Yes, that's right, Black Hand, who nowadays is mostly known for Black as Night. They've done this deep cut to the classic date night issue from Justice League America number 28. That's fantastic. Thanks to James Young for that heads up. Then another interesting thing came my way, and really this is something for an episode years from now, but I'm afraid I'm not going to remember, folks, so I thought I'd bring it up here. Justice League America number 60, which was the last issue in the Giffen DeMatteis era. Uh, the cover was you know, done by Kevin McGuire, but Jake Muir let me know that Chris Sprouse actually did the original cover. In fact, if you go back and look uh, over at Comic Art Fans, you can see Chris Sprouse's original cover for JLA number 60, and it's pretty much identical to what McGuire did. I mean, the layout's the same. There's a little bit of difference in facial expressions and stuff, but the flags overhead, all of it is the same. So apparently, somebody at DC, after Chris drew the cover, decided to get Kevin to draw it instead, probably because of, you know, his his long history with the book. It's a little sad that Chris has never got used, but again, you can view it over at Comic Art Fans. In the podcast sphere, want to give a shout out to Back to the Bins over on the Two True Freaks podcast network. I recently uh, recorded an episode. Now it's not out yet. It'll be out a little bit down the line. But me and Paul Spataro talked about Spectacular Spider-Man number 185 from February 1992. And this issue just happened to be written by J.M.D. Mateus. And the issue features tons of Justice League International gags. I mean, it's chock full of it. There's blah ha ha in there. There's uh, stuff about one finger rather than uh, a particular type of punch. And even the dedication of the end is a shout out to the JLI members. So check out Spectacular Spider-Man number 185 if you haven't, and stay tuned for that episode of Back to the Bins when it's released. Uh, over here on the Fire and Water Podcast Network, we just recently did an episode of FW Presents all about Elseworlds and what-ifs and imaginary stories. And the comic I brought to the table to discuss was called Justice Riders, which was an Elseworlds set in the Old West, and it was a JLI team. It had Booster Gold, Blue Beetle, Martian Manhunter, Wally West, uh, and other characters. You should definitely check it out. They episode, again, is over on the FW Presents feed, but you can also find the Justice Riders Elseworld published in various places. Again, JLI Elseworlds. Not a lot of those out there, folks, and it's really a great story. All right, now we're going to get into your feedback. So remember, go out on the social media, use our hashtag FW Podcast, or tag us at JLI Podcast. As I always say, it's about building a community of online JLI fans around the show, and we want to hear from you. And remember, when you're posting your comments, if you live outside the United States, let me know. We'll assign you the appropriate embassy. Also, if you have not taking the time to leave us an iTunes review, please think about doing that. We would sincerely appreciate that. It helps raise the profile of the show and helps new people find the show all the time. All right, now we're going to get into your comments from the website, email, social media, all these various places. Now I'm going to be pulling just bits and pieces of it because there is so much feedback. We'd be here all day. And already this segment is going to be pretty long because I'm covering feedback from two episodes. We're going to be talking about the episode that covered JLA number 35 and JLE number 11 with my guests Zaki Hassan and Jimmy McGlinchey, as well as our coverage of the JLI special with very special guest Joe Phillips who drew that issue. Alright, first up we're going to focus on comments from JLA number 35 and JLA number 11. First comment comes from Osamu who is the son of past guest of the show and dear friend Zoom Yukinori. When we talked about Justice League Europe, we talked about how some of the ink 
inconsistency in the word balloons between reprints and the original comic didn't seem to match up. As someone writes, on the word mistakes on the digital edition of Justice League Europe, page one, I think Mr. McGlinchey is right about it being due to the autocorrect. If you look closely at the two pages, the font on the digital page is actually different from the earlier printed one. I think DC rekeyed the words using a computer font. Not sure if uh, Bob LaPan did the rekey, though, for the digital edition so they are more readable. That leads to mistakes like these. You know what? Pretty good observation, Osamu, and you're probably right. They heard from Rob McCarthy from the Hell on Wheels comics. Rob writes, I'm confused. You can mind control heroes to join your team, and so Huntress? Why Huntress? Well, this led to a big, long discussion with a lot of folks. A couple of comments, though. Uh, one came from Symbol Pending, who does the Symbol Pending blog, all based on Power Girl, also from our UK embassy. Symbol Pending writes, Obviously, Max read somewhere that it would be good optics to have Power Girl on the team. You might just be right. Then Captain Entropy writes, But I just had a thought, Symbol Penning. That may have played into his calculations. With a Huntress, Max had a few seconds to defend himself. If he had pulled that trick with Wonder Woman or your Power Girl, and she found out about it, they'd have turned him into Tupperware. <laughs> Quite possibly. Then we heard from Chris Franklin from the Firewater Podcast Network. He does shows such as JLU Cast, House of Frankenstein, and so much more. Chris writes, As I mentioned last time, I tend to be on the side of the old school leaguers when they show up. So I'm totally with Aquaman here, despite still enjoying the current league's antics at this point. And it's funny how this league fell out of vogue so rather quickly. From hot enough to launch multiple spinoffs to suddenly an embarrassment in just a few short years. The JLI's trajectory is not unlike that of the 60s Batman television series. It would take another decade or two for folks to make peace with the blah-ha-has and embrace them. Yeah, Chris, you're absolutely right. It took time. Thankfully, we're there now, but uh, it was a rough go for a while there, wasn't it? Then we heard from Brian Linton who says, first, I enjoyed the two Ohio shout-outs in this episode. First for Akron and then for Cincinnati. That was too perfect as I grew up near the latter and went to college not far from the former. Second, when I saw the weird stuffed animals in Metamorpho's baby's nursery, I was suddenly reminded of the Wuzzles. In case you don't recall, they were a line of stuffed animals from the 1980s where each character was a strange mashup of two different animals. For example, a monkey combined with a rhinoceros. I think they may have even had a cartoon show at one point. Yes, Brian, the Wuzzles did in fact have a cartoon, and unfortunately, because I'm a child of the 80s, it's the cartoon theme song is a little bit burned into my brain. <sighs> They were from Gus Casals. I, I've never heard of this guy. I have no idea who he is. But anyway, this complete stranger writes, It's an embarrassment of riches, all the Justice League International, Europe, and America artists that have been. McGuire set the tone, and he owned the facial expression. So all artists following had to follow him on that. Now, some of the more super stuff he never really got. Captain Atom, Rocket Red's Apocalyptic Armor, and so. And that's where Sears excels. Shiny, super, muscly, techie. And here's where Sears inks over McGuire makes perfect sense. The cover actually looks like a collaboration that caters to each other's strengths. You're not wrong there, Gus. I mean, a uh, strange person I've never heard of. Then we heard from David Ace Gutierrez, owner and operator of the Katana Banana Fruit Stand. Now remember, folks, it's not too late to place an order for Christmas delivery. They do overnight shipping. David says, I'm glad the JLI cast is starting to show some variety in their personalities. And this is, I think, where peak boaha of the JLA begins its descent. Now that their book is pretty much filled with characters that only appear in the JLA book, the lunatics started to run the asylum. It could be, David. could be. We will find out in the coming months, I suppose. All right, up next is Jimmy McGlinchey, guest from the Irish Embassy and guest on the Justice League Europe coverage for issue number 11. He writes, Irish Embassy calling, and a very crowded one at that. Not only do I have all the food we prepared for when Shag was supposed to come over to discuss Justice League Europe number 11, thanks again, Shag, for dragging me to Paris, but Aquaman has just arrived with all the remains of Club JLI, including all of the food, saying that Beetle had told him to bring it to the Irish Embassy. Not only did I have to listen to Arthur moan for an hour about him not being a 
delivery man, I now have a ton of macaroni and cheese salad and crab legs, which do not go well with jack-o'-lantern scones. I'd invite all of you to come over for a JLI party, but with Ireland in lockdown again, I'm just stuck here with a lot of prawn cocktails and iced tea cakes to get through. <laughs> Thank you, Jimmy. I absolutely love your shenanigans, sir. Jimmy says, I enjoyed the discussion of the JLI artists. For me, Adam Hughes is the premier artist for this era. I think his backgrounds are amazing and his characters are all different. You can even see it in the looks of Huntress and Ice in this story. I'm not dismissing the works of Maguire, Templeton, or Sears and many of the others from this era. Just for me, Adam Hughes' work is slightly above the other amazing artists. Jimmy goes on to say, It's interesting how both Rex and Guy deal with their anger. Rex's anger is a righteous one, and while he's furious at times, he does not allow it to cloud his judgment. He uses his need to see his son to control his anger in the right way. Guy Guy's anger, however, is unfocused and that often leads to his downfall. Of course, I would think of all of this after I finished recording with Shag. <laughs> That's always how it works. Then we heard from Doug Van Diver from the old Bolty Neck blog. Doug says, well, welcome to the 90s, Justice League Europe. Ah, uh, what's this you brought to the party? An issue with a hero-on-hero fight? And you remembered the buckles and straps? How extreme of you. Thanks. <laughs> Captain Entropy follows that up saying, I saw no pouches in the gallery post. I will assume they have not evolved into their final form yet. <laughs> oh, you're right. The pouches are coming, sir. Then we heard from Evertom Vieira do Carmo from our Brazil embassy. Evertom writes, I can only think that Max did mind control again because he was at risk of death. I have to agree with the idea of turning the current Max Lord into a hero again. I would bring Max from an alternate universe where the League died in the first fight with Despero. This Max saw his friends die and would be willing to do anything not to let this happen again. Now, evil Max would still be around in the DC Universe if they want to use him again, but the alternate Max would be working with the League again even though the heroes are suspicious of him. I like your idea, Evertom. For me, I just like to think about the version of Max in the uh, formerly known as the Justice League and decide that that's my version of Max in the future. Then we're from Martin Gray from the Too Dangerous for Girl blog and our Scottish Embassy. Martin writes, To be fair to Max in regards to his mental control of Huntress, not only was it a case of damper down or likely die, he does tell Oberon he'll have another go at telling her the truth when they get back home. That later business about Max keeping Beetle and Booster on the team to ensure the JLI was ineffective never made any sense. Despite the constant wacky shenanigans, the team always won. I love young Mr. McGlinchey's idea of a Rocket Red and Animal Man book because they are indeed both dads. You could call it Family Men. Oh, you know, I got to agree with you guys. I would have loved to have seen a Rocket Red and Animal Man book. It would have been hilarious. Then we hear from Justin Steiner. He writes, I thought the three inkers really hurt the overall appearance of Adam Hughes' work this time around. Yes, some pages were great, but others just didn't seem to have the same punch to them. I don't know. Maybe it was just me. And Justin says, I read along using my digital copy of JLI Volume 6, but going forward, I'm not sure how I'll be able to read along as it gets really spotty on DC Universe and Comicology. Maybe with the switch to Infinite, they'll add more of the upcoming issues. Looks like the second Omnibus is coming, but that's pretty pricey, especially since I'm still eyeing the five-year-later Legion volume. Well, you're not wrong, Justin. Uh, the Omnibus is a little pricey, but, you know, if you go out to InStockTrades.com, one of our show sponsors, you can get it for a substantial discount. So something to think about. And also, I'm still hopeful that now that they've reprinted all those issues, and it, which means they had to digitize them, that uh, I hope that we'll see them on DC Infinite very soon. Then we heard from Tim Price from the Outcasters, Batman and the Outsiders podcast, and the Batgirl and Huntress podcast. Tim says, uh, regarding JLA number 35, one touch I especially like about Adam Hughes is he's changing people's hair. Specifically, Aquaman has his wavy locks at the beginning of the issue, but by the end, when his hair is freshly wet from being underwater and riding a shark, it's matted down. McGuire did this all the time, and Hughes 
Hughes continues it. Love it. Then he says regarding the Just League Europe issue and Metamorpho, he goes, I love Metamorpho outthinking guy with a relatively simple use of his powers. But okay, I seriously just had a thought of one more thing before writing in. Rex turns into gold. One of the metal men is gold, but they're not the same color. And from there, my brain went down a frightening rabbit hole of consideration. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry that happened to you, Tim, but thank you for not sharing all the details with us. Uh, that, that road leads to madness. Then we heard from Jason Lady, author of the young adult humorous fantasy adventure novels Monster Problems and the recently published Super Problems. Jason writes, I agree that the Kui 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 story may be the zenith of JLA in that when it comes to fun and absurdity, it never gets that good again. The Wally Tortellini two-parter comes pretty close, though. Jason goes on to say, Rex's beatdown of Guy is pretty brutal and doesn't seem to fit somehow because a loose thread like that later, they never follow up on it. You'd think Guy would hold a grudge against Rex and they'd be some kind of reprimand for both of them. But everyone just kind of continues was on. You know, that's interesting, Jason. I, I'll have to watch for uh, any sort of appearances, but I think you're right. I think they just kind of forget that it ever happened. They were heard from Mike Dynas from the Canadian Embassy. Mike writes, For me, I really like the characterization of Maxwell Lord on the ice raft. I thought it showed that he's not evil, despite what other later comics might infer, but he's also not quite ethical. Thinking he's about to die and wanting to clear his conscience means that he has a conscience, and that this entire time his actions have been weighing on him. But of course, when Huntress starts strangling him, he reverts back to his old self. That's what I really like about Max in this series. He's a character who isn't morally black or white, but gray. To me, it made him a much more interesting character. You make a great point, Mike. Uh, I, you know, We didn't take that into consideration, the fact that he does, at first, apologize and tell Huntress the truth because he does feel bad. So that's something, I suppose. Then we're from Adam Ackerman from our Denmark embassy, apparently formerly of the Ohio embassy. Adam says, oh, so of course, not only is Akron, Ohio a real place, but the wake for Jerry Fine, the friend of Jerry Siegel and Joe Suster, who introduced them to each other, had his wake there. And of course, the Hall of Justice is from Cincinnati, Ohio as well. Okay, I did my part from being from Ohio. <laughs> Thank you, Adam. I appreciate that. Then Steve Givens chimes in, by far my favorite JLI issue. Huntress nailing the jellyfish with her crossbow was so badass, and I'm a sucker for the trap in a perilous situation story. Good opportunity for deeper characterization. Thanks, Steve. Then we heard from Alan Sikowitz. Alan says, Rex fighting guy and then the metal man is awesome. Great couple of issues of JLE. You're absolutely right, Alan. Then Diablo Frank from the Martian Manhunter blog, Idolhead of Diablo, and the World Spine Podcast Network, and much more. Uh, Diablo Frank chimes in on his favorite JLI artists. His number one is Kevin McGuire. His number two is Mike McCone. His number three is Bart Sears. His number four is Bill Willingham. And his number five is Chuck Watkowitz. And I'm sure I said that last name wrong. Sorry, Chuck. Thanks for chiming in, Frank, but no love for Adam Hughes. Wow. Okay, interesting. Last comment on JLA number 35 and Justice League Europe number 11. Michael Wagner says, Guy Gardner versus former outsiders. Zero to two. <laughs> that took me a second, and then I realized, oh, that's right. Both Batman and Metamorpho have taken down Guy Gardner now. Hmm, interesting. All right, moving on to your feedback from Justice League International special number one. The guest for that episode was, of course, the artist of the issue, Joe Phillips. And from the feedback, you guys absolutely love Joe Phillips on the episode, and so did I. He was phenomenal. So Gus Casals writes in, again, I have no idea who Gus is. Gus says, awesome episode. Great to hear from Joe. And let me tell you, I did come across his later work in several gay media. And for a while, I wondered if he was the same guy from the early 90s DC, until his style became really impossible to miss on both. Love both facets of his career, probably because I'm in both 
target markets. Then Jason Lady says, Mr. Phillips was a great guest. It was awesome how you guys were cracking each other up. It was so cool to hear about his career and his work on Mr. Miracle. It's motivating me to go back and reread that run again. Oh, Jason, you're going to love it, man. That run is an absolute blast. Then we heard from my buddy Nathan Archer, who's an editorial cartoonist. He's the creator of the comic strip Ella, and he helped me craft some of the questions for the Joe Phillips interview. Nathan wrote, I first came across Joe's work in one of his Boys Will Be Boys calendars I found in a gay bookstore back in the 1990s. Like he said, the market back then was pretty much just erotic stuff. So it was very refreshing to see his illustrations of cute guys in all shapes, sizes, and colors, just having fun and being playful. I had no idea he was an industry artist until I saw his work a couple of years later in Adventures of Superman number 574. I fell in love with his work all over again, and it was great to see someone I only knew as a gay artist doing Superman. It was really inspiring. Funny he said he couldn't get a handle on Superman. I loved that issue and thought he was a great Superman artist. Well, thanks again, Nathan, for your feedback, and thank you for your help with the questions. Then we heard from Liz Ann Oswald, who has her own YouTube channel. Liz says regarding the the story, Fire Kissing Oberon, not sure if that's romantic or just her version of a see you later kiss. Never know with her. She was a passionate person. You're not wrong there, Liz. Then Martin Gray chimed in, I love Joe's idea of the Justice Society finding new purpose in the later years. Perhaps they could be mentors or doing a lot of community things like on the Golden Age comic covers. Oh, that would be fantastic. You know, I know DC has been dropping some uh, JSA images recently, so I don't know what direction they're going to go with the JSA, but uh, I would love to see JSA in the right hands, uh, being elder statesmen and teaching the next generation of heroes. That would be absolutely wonderful. And Martin says, I still think Ted looks amazingly sexy in his 1990s tux. (laughs) You're not wrong there, Martin. Then we heard from Ryan Daly from our own Fire and Water Podcast Network. He does shows such as Batman Nightcast, Cheerscast, and much more. And Ryan has the distinction of being the very first guest on the JLI podcast all the way back in episode one. So Ryan writes, I'm pretty comfortable saying that this was the best episode of the Blahaha podcast since the first one. Oh clever. Nice, Ryan. Uh, Ryan goes on to say, terrific interview, Shag. Joe's story was full of energy, enthusiasm, and humor like his artwork. Yeah, uh, Joe was an amazing guest. Thanks so much, Ryan. Then we heard from Mike Dynas. He says, it was great to hear from Joe Phillips. I love to hear his industry knowledge of not just this book, the industry in general. This was a great interview, and you guys knocked it out of the park. The talk of fashions made me laugh out loud. <laughs> Our references to Corey Haim apparently uh, made him chuckle. He says, I would love to hear more stories of Mr. Phillips working in the industry. Yeah, I mean, God, Gosh, uh, what, what else can I say? I mean, Joe was amazing. They were from Paul Wildenberger. Paul says, great interview and conversation, Shag. Having Joe discuss not only this specific issue, but also his experiences working in the industry was fascinating. I love to hear the perspective of someone involved in a book I read back in the day. On one hand, I thought all the late 80s, early 90s references were hilarious. On the other hand, it reminded me of how old I am. Yeah, Paul, unfortunately, every month I have that same sort of experience doing this show. I understand what you mean. Chris Franklin chimed in again and said, wow, that was an incredibly fun discussion. Oh, thanks, Chris. Tim Price says, what a delightful interview. Joe was so much fun to listen to. I have a lot of affection for that Mr. Miracle series, and it's fantastic to get him for the JLI special. Then Paul Hicks from our Australian embassy and uh, podcasts such as Waiting for Doom, DC OCD, and much more. He says, I love hearing comic creators who are enthusiastic, and Joe was next level in this regard. Absolutely, Paul. Justin Steiner chimes in and goes, that episode was absolutely delightful. Great interview with lots of laughs and insight into Joe's career and the industry. It was also a delight to reread the issue for the first time in 30 years and remember how fun it was and how much I enjoyed his work at the time. Then we heard from Damien Dryout-Whiter from our England embassy and the Should I Love This comic podcast he does with his husband. Damien says, I'm way behind on my listening, but I had to join in and praise this episode. This was a fantastic interview. Joe is clearly a great guy as well as a great artist. I love Joe's work right from his first issue of Mr. Miracle and I'm delighted he's still producing comics. 
And our final comment comes from Michael Wagner. It says, seriously, Shag, one of your best interviews. Well, Michael, I appreciate that, but uh, that was all down to Joe. That was not me. That was all down to Joe Phillips being just a great guy who's super easy to talk to. All right, folks, this is the part of the show where I thank everyone who shared the JLI podcast on their social media timeline over on Facebook or Twitter. And, and I know it's a long list of names. I get it, folks. But remember, these people have supported the show. They help promote the show. They've helped get the word out there. And every single month, we're finding new people listening to the show. So thank you to all these people. It's a critical part of getting the word out there. And you could be on this list as well. All you got to do is share it or retweet it. And uh, hey, you're on the list. And our community is growing. This time out, we're looking at over 75 names of people who helped promote the last couple episodes. So our thanks to Adam Ackerman, Al Girding, Andre TFG, Andrew Wood, No False Prophet, the Batgirl Hunters Podcast, Between the Pages Blog, Bill from the Bat Pod, Canadian Geek, Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Chris Lydon, Coffee and Comics, Collected Edition, Dale Russell, Damian Drowett Whiter, Danny Costello, Darren and Ruth Sutherland and their Warlord Worlds podcast, David Capoon, Dr. Jennifer Schwartz-Levine, Dr. Pop Culture Bowling Green State University, Ed Moore, Fan Film Friday's podcast, Federico Hernandez, Green Lantern HG, Gus Casals, James Young, Jeff Messer, Jeff Polier, Jeffrey Brown, Joe Phillips, woohoo! John Wilson, Justin Steiner, Kyle Benning in the King Size Comics Giant Size Fun Podcast, Con L, Liz Ann Oswald, Mark Baker Wright, Mark's Mess Podcast, Martin Gray, Martin Kogan, Matt Ev, Max Romero and his It's Plastic Man and the Mirror Factory Podcast, Max Traver, Maz of Maz Zinger, Michael Kramer, Michael Dinas, Mike Jameson, Mike Staley, Nuno Duarte, Old Bolty Neck, Paul Hicks, Paul Kean, Pragmatic Gollum, Relatively Geeky, Rick G, a degenerate boy. Rob Kelly and his accounts for Digest Cast, Superman Movie Minute, MASH 4077 Cast, Film and Water Podcast, Fade Out Podcast, The Aquaman Shrine, Treasury Comics, Mountain Comics, For All Mankind Super Friends Podcast, and Pod Dylan. Rod Pruitt, Roger Preeb, Rolled Spine Podcast, Scott X, Sean Ross and the Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Siskoid, Steve Givens, Superman Radio Revisited, Symbol Pending, Tim Price and his Outcasters, Batman and the Outsiders Podcast, Trent Lewis, Turbo Comics, Warlock Thanos Podcast, Willie Yarbrough, Zaki Hassan, and Zeb Oswald. My thanks to all of you for your support of the JLI Podcast. Your feedback has been such a critical part of the show, and this community of JLI fans we're building together is awesome. You guys are the best. Now, if I've forgotten or missed anyone, I am terribly sorry. It is probably the fault of Jimmy McGlinchey. Uh, please let me know, and I'll be sure to include you on the next episode. And keep those cards and letters coming, folks. Out on our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI. Leave your comments in the show post there. Over on Facebook, you can find us at Justice League International, Blah Ha Podcast. And on Twitter, we're at JLI Podcast. And you can email us at JLIPodcast at gmail.com. And if you're still listening at this point, I'll tell you a quick story. So at the beginning of this episode, I rattled off all the names of our wonderful supporters from Patreon. Well, from when I originally recorded this episode, so to the time of this release, there's been a few more names that have been added to the list. So I had to re-record all that. So I did it, you know, in post-production, or some people call that ADR. And this was possibly the worst ADR I've ever put together. It just, the audio doesn't match at all. It sounds like one of those bad dubs from an old TV movie, like when you watch an R-rated movie and they aired it on ABC or something, and they dub all the curse words with, oh, rats, or something. So I apologize that the audio quality doesn't match even remotely. So for those two people that are still listening at this point, there you go. little inside baseball for you. Anyway, my thanks again to Zachy Hassan, Jimmy McGlinchey, and Joe Phillips for appearing on those recent episodes. And thanks to you listeners for such a great collection of feedback. Now, we're going to take a quick podcast promo break, and when we come back, we'll see if we can bring Mike and Gus together in the same embassy.
you're listening to Prairie Justice, a Greg Sanders Vigilante podcast. You heard right, partners. The Vigilante rides again. From across the western plains and into the streamlined east flashes a mystery rider, symbolic of the spirit of frontier America, the Vigilante, heroic champion of law and order, who battles 20th century criminals with weapons of the range in a ceaseless one-man stampede against all lawlessness. Follow the victory trail of the prairie troubadour, Greg Saunders, and his alter ego, the Vigilante, as he rounds up public enemy number one, with smoking six-guns and twirling lariat. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Prairie Justice, the Greg Saunters Vigilante Podcast, climbs into the saddle on Podbean and Apple Podcasts. Hey, Paul, what's up? Ah, not much. What's going on? I'm, I'm just a little confused lately. I Yeah, what else is new? Well, you know... M- more than usual, I try to go to get the shows that we just put up, and I was having problems finding them. Well, we having trouble finding. Well, I couldn't find Back to the Bins. I couldn't find Avengers Spotlight. Of course, you can only find those when I actually edit them. <clears throat> and um, <laughs> oh, you took words you know, right out of my they're, they're on the feed, Bill. Yeah, I know. That's where I went. I went to the feed, but they weren't there. You know, you got to go to the feed. You got to go to the Back to the Bins feed. The Back to the Bins feed. What's yeah, that? Back to the Bins feed. You got to go to iTunes. You look for look up back to the bins, and you subscribe to the back to the bins feed. But I went to Two True Freaks. Yeah, we're on that feed too. What? Where? On the feed. Okay, wait a minute. Wait a minute. So you're saying that we're on? All right. So if I wanted to go find the shows that we've done, I'm gonna go on to iTunes, and I'm gonna click on back to the bins, and I'll find back to the bins and Avengers Spotlight in the feed. Exactly. I don't even know what I'm talking about! Bill, you go to the feed. You subscribe to the show. You subscribe to whichever show you want. And then you get it. It's that simple. You just gotta go to the feed. What show do I want? Back to the bins. Where? An Avengers Spotlight. Oh, I'm so confused. They're on iTunes. They're on 2TrueFreaks.com. You want them, Uh, you get them. You got them? All the shows are there. They're still all available, Bill. All right, on the so feed. the feed. If you say feed one more time, I'm going to break your arm. Oh, Scott, could you tell him? Hey, man, don't don't drag me into this because uh, it's no skin off my ass. I'm on all the feeds. <laughs> Bastard. Okay, folks, we're back from break, and yes, it does appear the JLI teleporter has brought both Mike and Gus together for us. And Mike, I appreciate you coming all the way back from Antarctica to wrap up the show. Thank you so much for being here. It's great to catch up with you. It has been too long, my friend. Would you please tell the people at home where they can hear more of you on the interwebs? Oh, absolutely. My main project that I do with my podcasting tag team partner, Mr. Casey Doran, is Radio vs. the Martians. It's sort of a pop culture book club, so to speak. We cover everything 
everything from action movies to horror, comic books, everything in between. Uh, you can find us on RadioVersusTheMartians.com. And uh, we also have our side project, which is kind of our half main project called Podcast <laughs> La Vista Baby, which is a uh, tribute to the cinematic genius slash uh, statesman that is Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, we cover all of his movies from beginning to end. And uh, you can find that over on PodcastLaVistaBaby.com. It's also on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and all the regular places you find podcasts. Well, thank you so much, Mike. I really, really appreciate being on the show. And I really appreciate you bringing your perspective on Nora, because I think it's really helped open my heart a little bit more to our favorite uh, Green Lantern. Oh, absolutely. I think he's a great character, and more people need to like him. Thanks again, Mike. Really appreciate you being here. Now, Gus, I really appreciate you appearing on the show. This has been an absolute blast. Thank you so much for coming in and representing South America. You've done your continent proud, sir. So why don't you please tell the listeners at home where they can find you on the interwebs? Sure. So you can find me as at Gus Casals in pretty much all the, you know, social medias. And also, if you speak or understand Spanish, I have a couple of podcasts that may interest you. So one is all about Batman through the ages. And, you know, I use my powers as a shrink to analyze Bruce and his cast of characters. <laughs> you could be doing that forever. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, yeah. So the podcast is called Alfred Pennyworth Presenta, which is Alfred Pennyworth Presents. And you can find it on wherever you find nice podcasts. And then I'm doing currently a podcast on the five years later Legion. It's called 60 Años Después, which is 60 years later. We already covered the, the full first year of the, of the comic, you know, the first 12 issues plus, you know, the annual and all the other things that you need to read to understand that. And we are in the middle of recording our second season, which covers issues 13 through 25. And of course, again, if you are a Spanish speaker, you can find my YouTube channel. Again, you can find me as Gus Casals. If you Google that, you're, you're going to go straight into that. I talk about, you know, the intersection of pop culture and LGTV culture in, in general. So I talk quite a bit about comics and I have a section where, for example, I kind of drool over my Legion five years later omnibus and talk about why it's important and why it's important to me and to LGBT people as well. Awesome. That's fantastic. And oh, the five year later run is what got me to become a Legion fan. I absolutely love that run. And thank you so much for being here, Gus. This has been an absolute blast. I'm glad you reached out to me. I'm glad you agreed to burn the negatives at this point. And uh, I really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been a blast for me as well. All right. That's going to do it, folks. Come back next episode when we cover Justice League America number 37 and Justice League Europe number 13. And we'll have two more guest hosts to help me cover the issues. Who will they be? Come on, people. You've got to have figured this out by now. You're just going to have to wait until next episode to find out. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time, I'm Shag. I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Gus. And you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. Want to make, make something, something of it? it? technology that Magnus invented that is called responsometers.